Podcast, and I'm your host, B. Getz, and this is episode number seven, coming at you live from Oakland, California, and we're so happy to have you tuning in. So yeah, really stoked to be back for another episode, you know, the two weeks go by and Sometimes I feel like I want to do one every week and then I realize the intense amount of pressure that it would take to really produce uh, engaging content on a weekly basis and I uh, aspire to that maybe even multiple times a week. But at the moment, it, what seems feasible is pretty much a one-man show here is the uh, bi-weekly blueprint. So that's how we're rolling with it and it gives the episodes a bit of a shelf life to kind of get around to any of those who've become regular listeners. And uh, yeah, so yeah, every other week. And two weeks ago, we had Random Rab on for a fascinating powwow of sorts. And thanks to Rab, he did a tremendous job sharing the, the podcast link all over his various social media networks. And I saw... A distinctive rise in the numbers, I'll be them humbled to begin with the numbers, that is, uh, the uh, skyrocketing downloads and streams, uh, comparatively speaking, were really awesome to see, and a lot of new listeners, and uh, looked at some of the analytics, and it was super cool to see all the different places that it's being streamed or downloaded, you know, nationally and internationally, um, so... Maybe one day after we get some more data, I might break it down on the air who's listening most where and uh, most obscure and so forth. But uh, we definitely have a, a small but determined uh, listenership here at the Upful Life podcast. And I'm, for one, very grateful for anybody who takes the time to tune in. And uh, yeah, humbled by the response to the last episode. And. Uh, before we get to, to that, I want to read a couple of really touching responses that I got, but I just want to do my uh, weekly thank yous. We're lining up a possible sponsor, uh, maybe even two, but um, I'm going to keep doing the, you know, the thank yous section in lieu of sponsorship at the front just because, you know, I want to shine a light on people doing the damn thing. And uh, this week we're going to go with Euphonic Conceptions, who's a concert promoter, uh, two fellas, uh, David Sheldon in Colorado and Josh Pollock here in the Bay Area. And they put on really progressive uh, music events in dance music and the sort of crossover with some of the Jamtronica world. Um, they were born 
out of the culture created by Sector 9 and uh, their old school Sound Tribe cats that uh, have been working uh, in tandem alongside Sound Tribe in a variety of capacities, promoting and producing events through the years. This year, they threw Tribe's first ever uh, festival at uh, Belden Town. It was called Waves Bell, and uh, it was a fantastic uh, event that flew by the seat of its pants, admittedly, in its first year, but uh, musically and the experience itself uh, was phenomenal. I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself, fell back hard for uh, Sector 9 and the Wavespell concept, which is an all-improv session that they do on stage. And the other artists that played were fantastic. Um, so there was just a, a great experience with Euphonic there. They've been doing the Bicycle Day uh, events. Uh, now it's a nationwide thing. They do like three in, uh, in New Orleans and here in California. Um, I've been to it in, the, in San Francisco a couple of times. It's always a great uh, eclectic uh, assemblage of artists and artisans and vendors and uh, massive that turns out for many uh, euphonic conceptions events is pretty top flight and uh, not the least of which was this past weekend with one of my favorite artists in electronic music, Dimmon Saints, who brought uh, their latest uh, live set with a special guest uh, saxophonist and MIDI iwi player named Narducci. So Dim and Saints headlined at the UC Theater in Berkeley. It was fantastic. Uh, as I stated, uh, Thriftworks also on the bill, who uh, unveiled some new music. And he's affiliated in a capacity with Euphonic Conceptions as well. They may manage him, or one of the Euphonic guys manages him. Um, so Thrifty came, correct? So did Ataya, who's... Uh, Another cat I've been hip to since I first started going to Burning Man, and he's an awesome original uh, electronic music producer, and he played early, and we caught the, most of his set as well. Um, so yeah, just a solid uh, event from Euphonic Conceptions, uh, just one of the many on their schedule. They do a weekly event in Denver called Research, uh, that's really like the best event of its kind in terms of weekly, uh, you know, progressive-minded electronic music and sort of all the tentacles that spiral out of that in the uh, electronic culture mecca that is Denver and the Front Range. I mean, it's like home base for cannabis and that kind of music culture, which is a match made in heaven, I'll tell you. I go out there annually for Lettuce's Rage Rocks event for, at Red Rocks early summer every year and get to briefly sink my teeth into uh, what goes down uh, on a regular basis there in Denver and I got to hand it to him. So this is a long-winded uh, thank you slash props slash deep bow to Josh Pollock, Dave Sheldon over at Euphonic Conceptions um, for just the tremendous work that they do. Initially, uh, I was a little reluctant to get so personal um, last week, or last episode, uh, after the Random Rab segment, I just kind of probed a little further with some of the items that we touched on that were of great importance and reverence to me, particularly regarding my father, which was intertwined with his music. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was reluctant to get so personal, but I'm sure glad I did. I got a lot of uh, really great feedback, public and privately, and just wanted to uh, acknowledge that and say thank you to everybody who was 
in one way or another touched or uh, moved or reached uh, in some capacity by the last episode. Um, I'm going to read two responses that I got. Uh, one is from a uh, regular listener. Uh, just keep them anonymous because they're, they're personal. Uh, but as someone who's also had the misfortune of having to deal with the death of a parent in my youth, this particular episode really hit home. Although the circumstances are infinitely different than your own, the emotions and resonance of doubt, regret, and frustration are universal. And you touched on each of those in magnificent fashion. It's amazing how the fundamental communication music can shape all the different facets of our existence. Well, thank you to the listener who uh, was kind enough to comment and uh, message me that uh, heartfelt response. Uh, and it, indeed, so did uh, another listener who um, reached out to me, who was, uh, was a part of the Burning Man and art community. And uh, she writes, Hey, I was listening to your podcast today. And just want to send you some love and let you know I enjoy it very much. Hearing you speak about the grieving of your father brought me to tears. I lost my dad earlier this year to brain cancer. Suddenly, and your story really struck some chords in me. So thank you for your strength and your insight. By the way, you've got a great voice for radio. And in general, but it's a particularly good radio voice. Anyway, I hope you are well and I'm sending my love to see you around sometime. So yeah, two very uh, heart-filling and touching uh, responses, which kind of communicate the general tenor of what I got back from that last episode. So in terms of my trepidation and uh, apprehensive uh, feelings towards uh, taking it there, as they say, I'm glad that I did, and I'm glad that it uh, reached people in such a way. And you know, maybe in the future, if the situation organically presents itself as it did in the past, maybe I will speak a little more uh, of topics of that nature or personal items, if you will. So, for episode seven of the Upful Life podcast, We've got Derek Smoker, government name Derek Freeman. And Derek is a drummer and a MC, singer, songwriter, and a lightning rod of sorts in the Crescent City of New Orleans. Um, Derek first arrived on my personal radar back when I first started visiting New Orleans. 2000, 2001, I'm not sure, it was one of my first couple years, and uh, there was a wildly popular local funk, and with elements of hip-hop band, uh, called Crunk, C-R-O-N-K, with two of the little umlauts, uh, dots above the O, Crunk, and they were just on some shit, and they had a whole boatload of swag, and all the kids that lived there that I knew or uh, came to know were hype on Crunk and fans of Derek 
and he always had a somewhat larger-than-life personality, it seemed, even back then. I just noticed him as sort of the, you know, backbone, literally and figuratively, uh, the times I got to see Kronk perform. And then, you know, just I noticed him through the years. Uh, he was the drummer, as he talks about in the interview, of Kermit Ruffins and the Barbecue Swingers for years. And the first couple times I saw Kermit... Uh, that would be Derek on the kit, and he occasionally sang a song, most notably Sly and the Family Stone, If You Want Me to Stay, which was kind of, you know, stuck out in the Kermit set. So, yeah, you had uh, Derek just being a dude that, you know, moved from Houston to New Orleans in 1992 uh, at the behest of uh, Ellis Marsalis, the legendary uh, patriarch of the Marsalis family of jazz and uh, studied under Ellis's tutelage, among others, like Shannon Powell at UNO. And then he just immersed himself in New Orleans' music scene and culture. And like I said, as a player and as a personality, he sort of just uh, embedded himself and uh, toured and gigged and learned. And He was always just uh, somebody that stuck out like a sore thumb. And uh, real recognized real, so I always just had a lot of you know fondness for him. Though I never knew him till about four or five years ago, but uh, in that time, you know, I've seen him uh, really rise to the occasion. Uh, he's, he's a very outspoken, progressive, political-minded dude. Tells it like it is. Social media has a big following and a lot of conversations with depth uh, and l less bullshit than normal, if you will. I like to think that was our conversation on this podcast as well. And, uh, you know, like the song that's playing in the background right now, it's called New Orleans is Fallujah. And that was an opening song off his album, Blurple Pain, which he talks about the long and winding road of making that album uh, over the course of a decade, give or take. And it's a great record. Uh, again, came on my radar way back when it came out, like around 2012, it's sort of like a comedy, hip-hop, or I should say hip-hop, R&B, comedy, in that order. Uh, uh, cut from the cloth of, like, the classic Death Row albums. Almost like if the Dog Pound went to... Dog Pound plus Nate Dog went to New Orleans. And uh, it's a cool record. It's got a lot of funk. It's got a lot of swagger, like anything Derek touches. So uh, just as a artist he just uh, separated himself and you know he's always got something to say and in this interview we uh, no holds barred no frills approach which i appreciated and you know he talks a lot about uh, you know relationships that he had and or has and, and the effect they've had on him and his career or experiences that he's had you know and um, ones that are stick out in my mind specifically he talked about as cyril neville uh, you know, the uptown ruler himself from the legendary music family of New Orleans, the Neville Brothers. And then, of course, he goes on and gets deep about his relationship with uh, Houseman, Theral DeClout, the late uh, singer who fronted Galactic in the early parts of their career and is a was a beloved figure in the music community down there and elsewhere and uh, passed away earlier this year and um, Derek uh, gives a few stories in the rearview mirror of how uh, Houseman put him on game. And, you know, you really can't even, uh, for him to 
break that down for us and tell us about that side of house and that side of the relationship is truly special. Um, he talks a lot about relationships from everyone from like Walter Payton, who's uh, the trumpeter Nicholas Payton's father and a uh, major cat who early in uh, his career. And then, you know, he talks later uh, about how Nikki Glaspie's inspirational words, you know, were what was the impetus for him to do his own music. And that was really cool because Nikki's a friend of the show and a friend of mine. And, you know, just to hear how, you know, she you know, saw him in a certain light and then chose to tell him so. And that propelled him into a creative space that gave us things like Blurple Pain and the follow-up album DWB, Driving While Black. He also talks a bit about his experience uh, surrounding Katrina, you know, and I'll just leave it at that. Uh, the Katrina and the long winding road back to the city and life uh, post-storm. So that is uh, another, uh, you know, riveting tale delivered with uh, typical candor and irony that uh, only smoker can. So, yeah, it's a lengthy introduction you got there about uh, my episode seven guest, Derek. Freeman. I'm going to play a song from uh, his album, Blurple Pain. But uh, just a quick, uh, from his bio, is Derek Freeman's a New Orleans-based percussionist, vocalist, pianist, songwriter, and music industry veteran. His work includes 20 years of percussion for Kermit Ruffins and the Barbecue Swingers and a handful of prominent New Orleans bands from Cool Bone, Mass Hysteria, All That Crunk, more than 30 years of study in jazz, funk, pop, and related styles. A bachelor's degree in jazz studies from UNO under the direction of Ellis Marsalis and Harold Batiste. Uh, so that's basically a Derek in a biogra- biography nutshell. And I'm going to play a song called Slick from Derek Freeman's debut solo LP from 2012 called Blurple Pain. The song Slick features Sean C. and Kang Harvey. Uh, And then we'll come back with uh, 100 Minutes with Derek Smoker. And step into the smoker's world. You're listening to Episode 7 of the Up Full Life Podcast. And I'm your host, B. Getz. Yes, indeedy.
Outside the Bywater, on the other side of Saint Cloud, been told. It's pretty um, close. Yeah, and uh, I'm lucky to have Derek here for a little while, pow wow. So welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, B. It's my pleasure, man. And it's a privilege and an honor to have to have you here, and uh, really excited to talk to you about a number of things. So the first time I ever, uh, first time I ever saw you play, I didn't know you yet. Mm-hmm. A band called Kronk. I was here at my first jazz fest in 2000. So before uh, before we get into kind of the whole New Orleans thing, um, how did you end up here? Because I know you're, you're not born and raised here, right? No, I'm from Houston, Texas originally. Okay. Um, and uh, I was fortunate enough to go to a, um, a great high school, high school performing in visual arts, which is uh, very similar to NOCA High School here in New Orleans. Um, just because of that... Uh, um, has opportunities to be involved in like um, music contests or whatever. So I guess I got um, 
was on the radar. I graduated high school in 1992. So around that time, like 90, 91, 92, a lot of major universities started adding jazz to their music programs. <clears throat> so the, all these scholarships opened up as a result of that. Um, and I actually grew up kind of doing musical theater and did more playing classical music, classical percussion. Um, I started playing jazz more kind of like my senior year of high school um, out of necessity for um, they needed a drummer <laughs> in a jazz combo. And um, so we had a jazz combo my senior year. We, we, we played a lot around um, in Houston and like parts of Texas. And Ellis Marcellus, um, a lot of people came to our school to do clinics and what, what have you. So Ellis Marcellus came my senior year of high school, maybe even my junior year. <clears throat> Jason Moran, who you know, I'm sure is um, a great um, jazz pianist on Blue Note. Uh, he and I went to high school together. I think Ellis was there trying to recruit him to come to UNO because Ellis had just started at UNO in 1990, I believe, or maybe 91, maybe, either a year or two before I got here. The jazz program at UNO started. They endowed Ellis and made him the head of the program, so they started recruiting kids from all around the country. So he came to our school to do a clinic. He's trying to recruit Jason Moran. Um, so later that year, after I think I had already graduated high school, and I was trying to go to Howard in D.C., and I think I was to the point where I was going to just go to Texas Southern University in Houston, I was going to be like, I was going to stay in Houston. Scholarship. Yeah. Music. Whatever. Yeah. Um, and so we played a game the High Regency um, opened it up for Ellis, the high regency in Houston. Like, literally, maybe a week after I graduated high school. And um, he's talking to me. And he's like, oh, Mr. Freeman, blah, blah, blah. Because I might have applied to UNO or, or like, had a counselor that tried to encourage me to do that or something. Um, whatever, I was on his radar for whatever reason. And um, he was saying, you know, she kind of UNO and blah, blah, blah. So long story short, the... Um, the head of the whole music department was this guy, Dr. Blanc, Dr. Charles Blanc, who died recently, by the way. So rest in peace, Dr. Blanc. But Dr. Blanc was the college roommate of my high school band director. Okay. <laughs> Does it make sense? Yeah. Now? And, and he, was yeah, the, he, was he was the, the head of UNO. Right. right. So like, you know, so I get on his radar because the jazz guys are like, okay, we're checking this kid out. Maybe you want to give him a scholarship. And he's like, I think that's one of Bob Morgan's kids. And so, he calls, so he calls my... High school band director. He's like, Bob, this is one of your kids? And he's like, he's like, oh, yeah, Derek, he's a great drummer, musician. He also plays vibraphone. He can also play in your concert band, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, damn. So, like, so by the time when I go to UNO to audition, they're all like, we don't know who you are, but for some reason you got a full scholarship. Oh, shit. Like, word. Like, you know what I'm saying? But they, I mean, they know I can play and shit. So I get there and then um, when I get to UNO, I'm like, Real cocky, because you understand, most of my friends, we graduated high school, they all went to New York and D.C., Boston, immediately. They all went to Berkeley. To or school? School. Okay. They went to Berkeley, Manhattan School of Music, New School, or they all went to Howard, or they went to, you know, William Patterson, or a few people went to L.A., some people went to Miami, whatever, you know what I'm saying? So I was with, like, me and just another guy, my friend Jason Hainsworth, uh, came to New Orleans. So... I was like, whatever, I'm going to use this shit as a jump off. Like, I'm going to be here maybe a year or two, and I'm going to just go to New York. 
or I'm gonna transfer to Berkeley or whatever. Right. I'm gonna be famous like Wayne Marcellus and be a famous fucking jazz musician. You know what I mean? It's all like a stepping stone to the next step. Yeah, totally. It was just like, all right, they gave me a full scholarship. Like my mom can't afford none of that other shit. You know what I'm saying? Like if I was gonna go to Howard, I was gonna be like staying in the projects. It was gonna be like terrible. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> For real. Like, so yeah, I mean it just made sense financially. It was I could get here easily from go back yeah. and forth to Texas, a fucking bus ride or whatever. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So that you know, you know how moms are. They're like she got wind of the full scholarship. She was like, Yeah. That's what you're doing. No, not no, not even that. Like she took it a step further. She was like yeah, I called those people, <laughs> and they said, you can move in those dorms tomorrow. I'm like, what? I'm like, nah, it's like June. It wasn't even like summer. It just started. Right. I'm like, yeah, ma, I ain't really got to go till August. She's like, yeah, like I said, I called them people. <laughs> she was like, so you. It's like, your ass is going on the bus tomorrow, and like, your uncle's going to bring all your shit this weekend. Like, like, like. Peace. Yeah, like, and I, I was still like. Nah, nah, like, Howard's gonna call me back. Like, blah, I was still, like, in denial or whatever. She's like, nah, then fuck, you know. Because I want to go to Juilliard. I was still, like, classical, whatever. Yeah. She's like, whatever, jazz, like, go do whatever. Like, yeah. full ride. No, yeah, you're, like, you're fucking going there. Like, duh. Right. You know what I mean? So, whatever. So, we get here. And, um, so when I first got here. And you like, just a jazz cat at that time? No, no, I was still, like, in my, my mind, yeah, I was still, like, a classical cat, more like... Okay, not even a jazz cat yet. Yeah, but, like, I was kind of, like... I was, like, if I want to be a jazz cat, I need to go to New York. Cause, so I was, like, double-pitched. I was, like, classical music program here is crap. You know, in my mind. I mean, right. they were all... I had, there was, like, actually great teachers there. Um, what was your view of, of New Orleans? New Orleans was, like, like, like shit yeah. to me. I'm like, yeah, Houston's like a big it wasn't city. A step up. No, because Houston was always getting disrespected. And we're always like, no, no, we're a big city too. Like, let's talk about Houston just for a second. Sure. Like, right now, uh -huh. who's from fucking Houston? I just said Jason Moran, right? Right. Robert Glasper, right? Yeah. Eric Harlan, right? From here, I went to high school with him. Mark Simmons, I mean, we can go on, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, a lot the, of cats came out. Yeah, and New Orleans too. But, right. the, you know, the uh, John Baptiste, the. The, the, no, from uh, New Orleans. I'm just saying, like this, you know, it's where the cats are coming from, or Florida, like to all, even like all the New York cats. I mean, with the, the, the exception of like Krasno, like right. all the New York cats are from down here. You know what I'm saying? Right. They're all from right. Texas or Florida or New Orleans. Yeah, they're not native to New York, right? So Krasno isn't either. He's New Hampshire, of course. But you know what I'm yeah. trying to say. Um, and uh, you know how much I love Krasno. It's not a diss at all. Um, I'm just saying. Um, so that was like already happening back then. Right. You know what I'm saying? So like New Orleans was like not even the cats from New Orleans were like, nah, peace. Like, you know what I'm saying? Wenton, Harry County, Nick Payne was like, I don't fuck about you know what I'm saying? Right. Like Adonis Rose was at Berkeley at the time, you know what I mean? A bunch of New Orleans cat uh Kenyatta Beasley. There was a bunch of New Orleans cats that had already jetted. Right. So I'm like, why would I go there? They don't want to stay there, you know what I'm saying? Okay. So right it was definitely I felt like above it. Okay. Like, because I went to, like, an elitist-ass performing arts school. Yeah, like, right. you know, so I'm trying to get in conservatories and shit. Like, right. you know, like, I got accepted to Oberlin. I just wasn't about to go to Ohio, you know. At Carnegie Mellon. Like, I'm, you know, I'm. these are the places I'm trying to go. Right. So, you know, I'm like, what? Like, it's right. a fucking joke. But I'll go for moms right. and do what I got to do. You know what I'm saying? So. How familiar were you with, like, the Ellis Marcellus and the family legacy at that point? I was I was I was 
I, I mean, Ellis was a huge selling point, obviously. I was right. definitely way familiar with that. Like, um, a huge fan of Wenton at the time. I mean, Wenton was kind of, I mean, Wenton was the one who, like, I say my mom, but Wenton was the one who was like, no, you should go study with my daddy. And I was yep, okay. Like, I, you know. And I met some bad cats in you and Don't get me wrong. Like, once I got here, I was like, oh, shit. Like, yeah, when you got there. It yeah, it was like, into and I kind of got thrown into the fire because it's like, Brian Blade was already kind of like a badass and was gigging. And, he was uh, in school. You were he there. wasn't. Even, he was an anthropology major. A lot of people didn't even know that he wasn't okay. even really a jazz major. He was just there, but he was already like, you know. And then like a bunch of the back, like Harry Connick, he came and plucked a bunch of dudes, including like Jeremy Davenport, like when he started the big band. So it was like, so at the time, and you all know when. Like, they would give you a stipend check, like, the second week of school. Okay. So, like, Cass would be like, like, Jeff Clapp got a stipend and just jet it. And was like, I'm going to New York. So then, like, the number one, like, jazz combo was stuck with our drummer. So my 18-year-old ass is just like, you're in the number one combo. We're like, the baddest motherfuckers. <laughs> like, Ellis is in charge. I'm like, way beneath my, over my head with right. those guys. But, like, no, they, like, called me out on my cocky shit. Like, no, you're the baddest... Like, yeah, right, you the baddest cat here. I'm like, fuck, let's go. Right. So I'm like, oh, shit. It's so like, you know, I learned a lot of hard lessons. Victor Goins, like, cats hiring me for gigs with just the baddest, oldest, baddest motherfuckers in the world. And I'm just not hanging at all. And then, like, like so getting, like, humbled by that shit, right? And then, like, I mean, I'm, before I got there, I was already a huge fan of Shannon Powell and Herlin Riley. Like, just from stylistically, you know what I'm saying? Right. But... I always just view those guys as guys from New Orleans. Like, I never thought they actually really lived here. You know what I mean? Which they do. But I, at the time, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, Every New Orleans guy I thought was just a guy. Born and raised here in Jack. And was in New York. Yeah. Because right. so my perspective was warped on that. So, I got here and then, like, you know. And I was, I did pretty good. My first, like, probably three or four semesters. I was, like, really good. Like, Dean's List, like. Kind of a good student, like handling my business, learning, like playing vibe, playing classical, vibraphone. And, also. Yeah. Like my okay. first, my, I didn't even, like, I had to beg them to give me a jazz teacher. They were making me have like a classical percussion teacher. Right. So like my first teacher was Johnny Vodakovich. You wow. know what I'm saying? It was just like, and then like I, I studied with Johnny for like a semester and I was like, I love, I love Johnny. I still love Johnny. But I was like, everybody was sounding the same to me back then. I was like, man. So I was like, so when the, the next semester, I just didn't sign up for a lesson, which you have to have because you're on scholarship. So Ellis literally comes up to me in the hallway, like maybe the second or third day of school. He's like, Ellis still talks to me like this to this day. <laughs> he's like, oh, he's like, Mr. Freeman, it's made to my attention that you know I signed up for a private lesson. He's like, but if you're on scholarship, you must have a private lesson. That's how Ellis talked to me. And I'm like, and I'm like a brazen young kid. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, but I don't really want to study with none of these motherfuckers. Like I say, just like that. He's like, well, who do you want to study with? I'm like, man, why am I here? I'm like, duh. I'm like Shannon Powell, Herla Riley, one of them motherfuckers. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so like, I was like, all right. And two days later, Shannon Powell shows up. Shannon Powell is like one of my fucking heroes. You know what I'm saying? Right. And like, I'm already like, at this point, I already been in New Orleans for like a year, so I'm already telling him. Like, he, I'm already at his gigs, like, you know what I'm saying? So now he's here on campus, right? So at the time, most of the practice rooms were on the second floor, but the drum rooms, 
because we had all this, you know, because I have vibes and shit. I had like all this equipment. So I had like this large room, like probably the size of this room we're sitting in. And it was like on next to the offices where Ellis and all their offices were. So Shannon comes in there and he's coming to give me a lesson. Like my first lesson at UNO with him. It's like, you know, we had read, it's pre-cell phone. So it's like, you know, he had, he knew I was a kid from Texas that he had been checking out. But it's not like we were boys, you know, we didn't have any, I didn't know who, you know, right. I, I, I can't call him. But, you know, so he's like, oh, yeah, he's like, bro. So he's like, man, he's like, I want to thank you for giving me this gig and this check. Because you know, <laughs> Shan's probably in his late 20s at the time, maybe early 30s, you know what I mean? So he's just like young-ass cat hustling. He's like, y'all teach this little motherfucker, like, how much y'all paying me? So, like, he lights a joint. We're on campus. This motherfucker he lights a joint. In, in the drum room, he started smoking. He's like, look, man, I can be coming here every week and doing this shit. I ain't got time for that. He's like, just come to the gigs, stand behind me and watch my feet. That's straight up what he told me. Said me. Watch my feet. Yeah, but like he's showing he, he showed me a lot of shit, don't get me wrong, but this is what he told me. So like, other dumbasses, neither one of us locks the door, right? So Ellis come bursting in there, fucking smoke, busting right in the fucking face. And I'm like freaking out. I'm like 19 years old. Right. I'm like, Oh shit, I'm about to get kicked out of school. This is about to be fucked up, right? So like I just free, I don't say shit. And Shannon looks at Ellis, he's like, He's like, motherfucker, get out of here. Why are you disturbing our lesson? Like slams the door. I'm like <laughs> That's amazing. What the you know, he's like he's like, man, Ellis just a cat, don't worry about that, man. He's like Right. And you know, and then ever since and then Ellis was just like like then you know like, he knew I was high after that every time he right. so he's like this is, you know. He still hired me. I played a lot of fucking gigs with Ellis, though. Now we get into that. Like, so, so, so after Shannon and them, so that's how I met Kermit. Okay. And James Andrews. Like, it was like Kermit, James Andrews, Corey Henry, Little Trombone Shorty. Like, yeah. I kind of met all of them at the same time. Like, my friend William Terry, who still plays bass with Shamar Allen and the Underdogs. And they make soap, buy you soap. <laughs> Will Terry was a sax player at the time. He, he went up. And he was like, man, talks real deep. Man, you got to go to Joe's, my Joe's Cozy Corners. I'm like, where the fuck is Joe's? Because I ain't never been outside of like New Orleans East in the park by you and up. Right. I'm still like a kid. I'm not even yeah, drinking. Here, yeah, right. didn't have a car yet. Right. So I'm like, I haven't really even been to the hood yet. Right. Like <laughs> where the, the, you know, the real hood where shit's going down. Right. So like, I take my ass to Joe's. Yeah, I'm like 19, maybe. Like, fucking Tuba Fat, Danny Barker, like these motherfuckers are there. Walter Payton, like, what is, like, okay. Yeah, so then, like, all of a sudden, I'm not on the Dean's list no more. Like, <laughs> it's not happening, you know what I mean? It's just like, I start picking up gigs, and people yeah. are like, you want to go to Germany? Like, fucking right, I want to, like, what? Yeah. yeah, like, you know what I'm saying? And I'll get notes from Ellis to be like, yeah, like, I had miss school six weeks. Yeah, they, like there's nothing they can do about it. Right. Like, Ellis Marcellus said I can miss class. They're like, yeah, <laughs> like so he's on scholarship. Like you have to give him a B. Like, right. sorry, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's like they're not gonna tell him. What well, the program's young and broke then too. So like people like me, they're like using me as and they're using me as selling. They're like, right. look, look at this case in Germany. Right, <laughs> right. Of course. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it was all kind of a, which was a bad way for me to learn, like. 
You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. that was like, it took me a lot of years to get out of that entitlement because of those type of things right. being like. What you saw at a young age. Yeah, I'm like, you know. Like I toured David Byrne when I was like 23 years old, you know what I'm saying? Wow. So it's like one of those things. It's like, what do you mean? There's no masseuse? Like, wait, where's the, cat- <laughs> where's the catering? Wait. Right. <laughs> like, who the yeah. fuck do you think you are? You know what I'm saying? And, I'm, and that's kind of why we had to start crunk. Because, like, when I, cool bone. All right, so first, so I was playing with Ellis, right? And I was also doing gigs with um, Ed Peterson at the time. Ed Peterson was also yeah, was a professor at UNO. Yeah. At so the he time. would ask you all to play his gigs? I was in his first band, The Test. Okay. Me, Glenn Patchett, and David Pulfus. And, and, and Ed is like, you know, Ed's from Chicago. So he's like, for me, insane, like, freaking avant-garde jazz. So all his compositions are like, fucking bananas like like way like you have to be like almost Einstein to interpret this so like Ed's gigs would just go it was a lot of fun because it was like as a drummer you just like it's just like pure violence the whole time it's just like Like, he would literally scream that word on stage he'd be like violence what is happening but I loved it and Ed got me in downbeat like Ed was fucking like a huge mentor of mine but like Ed like you're still in school at this time? Yeah, and he was like, and Ed was very much an educator, you know what I'm saying? So, like, so as I'm, like, once I started, like, once Kermit started hiring me and, like, Walter Payton started hiring me and I started going, you know, it was just, like, school was, like, whatever. But I was, like, I was like, but, yeah, I mean, if y'all don't keep, I'll stay here for the free apartment. Like, you know, yeah, sure, I'm enrolled. Like, you're play the gigs. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's, school. like, and, and, of course, that was, like, Especially the early days of you and all. I mean, that's a large percentage of us. That's what we did. But like, what could they do about like, if they want people to come here, like, there's got to be cats to go to school here. You know what I'm saying? So it was like, I mean, I feel like as I got older, I I started to realize those guys' positions back then. It's like, damn, like, we're some little assholes. So where we fucking we carried that. You know what I'm saying? But whatever, because yeah, it was like John Ellis. Like, think about who. I mean, Derek Dogay, John Ellis. You know, you know, Paul Longstreth, Glenn Patcher, Nick Payton, Jeremy, De- like all, you know, it's just like the most, it's all these gifted, bad motherfuckers. Really so yeah. just, you they know. got a lot early. They early, lot yeah. Early. So we was like, you know, so, and like I made Ed cry one time. Man. And it was funny at the time, but like to this day, I, I feel like, I feel so bad about it. Because like, he was like, he was like pleading me to like, you know, get, get shit serious and blah, blah. And I was just like, yeah, man, I just really don't care, man. Like, I don't care. Like, he right. just, like, start busting out crying. <laughs> it's because like... Because he's thinking <laughs> you're giving up your gifts. You're, like, uh, right. spoiling your... Right, 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 right. You know, some way, you know, they know I'm, like, hungover. I'm right. maybe still drunk, high, whatever. Like, and Steve, like, Steve... Man, I took one of Steve Mazakowski's class, like, so many times. It's like, I think maybe the fourth time Steve was like, look, just... You're gonna get an A. Just don't yeah. fucking come no back. Stress. Don't come back to it. Like, I get it. It's fine. Right. Like, whatever. <laughs> Merry Christmas. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you mentioned Walter Payton, which is uh, Nicholas Payton's father. Yeah. He was a you know a mentor to you. you gigged with him in Big that time. Era. Yeah, Walter. I went to Frankfurt, Germany, with Walter. I think when I was still a teenager, actually. Right on. The first time I went overseas with Carmen, I think. Either I turned 21 on, on the tour or, or something like that. But it was like, I was already, yeah, so Walter and I went out with 
And then later, a few years after that, like maybe like around 97, 98, John Brunius, who's Wendell Brunius' older brother, um, as a trio, I did a lot of gigs with them, like in Jamaica, in the islands. It's cool because they were like in their 60s, and I was in my 20s, and they were like wow. teaching me all the bad habits. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and I had to like go, like go get us drugs, like, you know, like Damn. don't even fucking check in, like. <laughs> Part of the job. Yeah, basically. Right on. Um, so I learned a lot. Outside um, of off the stage stuff. Yeah, you know, so like, so, and then veering off, so at the time, I was staying, so like, in my kind of like, when my college life got shitty, but I was still kind of half doing it, half not doing it, I was staying at Delphio Marcellus's house. You know, Delphio had this huge house, he still has a house. On on Coronado um, Street. Sounds like another son to Alice. Yeah, Delphio is um, third son or fourth one of them. Yeah, fourth maybe whatever. Delphio, yeah, he's um, that's who the lady was talking about in the Uber just now. Her husband plays with. He has got a big okay. man here. But anyway, um, yeah, Delphio had like kind of big, like a big commune kind of like place. Like Joshua Redman stayed there for a little while. Okay. Like one of the like a flop house room. Right. So like we, I stayed there kind of permanently for a couple of years. So, two of my best friends, my friend Eric Clay, who later became Eric Cassius Clay, he died of cancer a few years ago. And my friend Dre Carter from D.C. Eric was from Kentucky. Dre is from D.C. I met them both at UNO. Dre was a um, a mentee of Winton's. So, we, you know, and then Ellis was, like, worried about me. So, it was just like, you're going to go stay with my, you know. They kind of, like, forced Delphio to take me in. Because I didn't really have money to pay rent and shit. Was right. Delphia was happy, but it was like, Ellis is like, he's not going to stay here. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, so, Dre and Cassius were both trumpet players. Like, they were, they're singers and rappers and producers now when Cassius died. But they ended up being, you know, more hip-hop R&B guys. But they played trumpet, right? Okay. So, both of them would play, you know, young brass band gigs, blah, 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 right? So, somehow they both getting this... Brass band, Cool Bone, right? A Cool Bone was an offset of the original Soul Rebels. Like, some of the guys, they... Anyway, Hollywood Records has come down and trying to sign a brass band. So, I think they were trying to sign the Soul Rebels. I don't know what happened. It was turmoil. But anyway, Cool Bone got this huge record deal with Hollywood Records, right? So, they decide they want to produce, like... The record was called Brass Hop. They want to produce this, like... Because Jazzmatazz and all this shit... Uh, that came yeah. out so they were trying to they were like we do a New Orleans version of that shit it'll be a brass hop blah 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 so Cool Bone signs this big deal right so Dre and Cassius become part of that the thing like they become the singer and the rapper of this band Cool Bone Cool Bone which but everybody else in the band is a family Steve Cool Bone Johnson his little brother Ronnell Johnson who you know because he plays tuba with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band right now okay. and Ronnell was still a kid he was playing tuba in the band on Steve's other two brothers and Steve's cousins. So it's Steve's whole family and Cassius and Drake. And they're all brass band, New Orleans, church, jazz guys. They don't know shit about hip-hop or production or any of that. So like the record company's like, but we love Cassius and Drake. Make it happen. So they do a, make the record. Long story short, the drummer beat somebody up. So Cassius and Drake like, so our boy Freeman's right there. So boom, I end up in the band. Now I've been playing jazz this 
it, up until this point. So when I get on the road with Cool Bone. Were you into hip hop though? Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I was, yeah, I was just, I was a classical dude, so I was more. I saw it as a different world. It's different for me. Yeah. Like I love like, of course I love like, low end theory. Like that's was the jazz. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That was the shit that brought me back to hip hop because I was like, ah, like, uh, Common Resurrection, The Roots, First Record. Jazz Mattel. So yeah, so that I mean, where I'm, and I'm you know, it's ninety seven, so I'm twenty three, twenty two, twenty three. So like yeah, now I'm like, all right, like you know, the jazz shit is getting I mean, whatever. I'm just trying like you know, like like it's not it's, it's not really a lot of chicks at Ellis Marcellus shows. Right. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, all right. So how long did that cool bone thing go for? It went for longer than I mean I was just a higher gun. But so in but on that, during those years, or during that year, I guess, when I was on the road with them, 1997, the first tour we went on was with Camp Lowe and Spearhead. And me and Franti and Carl Young, like, connected immediately because none of the Kubon would do smoke weed. I tell you, they were all church West Bank right. kids, right? And so I'm like, so I'm like, Spearhead be like, you want to just ride on our bus? Like, yes. Can I please? <laughs> You know what I mean? Because like these, you know what I mean? And I don't really give a fuck about their morals or whatever because I'm just a hired gun. I'm not even on the record contract. But like the record company loved me because of my voice. They're like, I would do all the, the junkets and shit. Be like, yo, when I'm listening to KK7 in Detroit, blah, blah, You know what I'm saying? So like, they were like, no, no. Y'all hold on to this kid. So the first one we did, Camp Lowe Spearhead. Then we went on tour with fucking Ben Harper. Then we went on tour with David Byrne. David Byrne finally loves with me and it's like, I need you, I want you to do some gigs and me. I'm like, what? Like, yes. Like, <laughs> duh. He fell in love with all of us. Actually, David Byrne was incredible. Yeah. So this is what I'm experiencing when I'm 22, 23 years old. Then uh, De La Soul, all the motherfuckers. We toured everybody, right? Like, it happened. Because we were on, like, William Morris at the time. Hot New New Orleans, like, unique. Fire, yeah. Like, everybody at home was like, what the fuck? Like, jealous, tripping. Like, how the fuck y'all pull that shit You guys got, like, a record? Major, yeah. yeah. Brass Hop is what it's called. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. It's hilarious. It's a great record. So, so now, so now, now the buzz and hit me. I'd have been on tour with rappers and fucking right. rock stars. Feeling yourself. Yeah, so when I get home, I'm like, I'm not about to go play with fucking Kermit and James. And like, fuck that. Like, so I'm like, we got to start. We got to get on. We got to let. So that's how. Well, no. So when I quit Cool Boy, actually, I'm skipping over DJ Davis. Okay. So right when I'm like, when I knew I was about to quit Cool Bone, because they were tripping, because they got jealous of the front guys. Right. You know, because I'm like, yeah, I'm like, and I used to be like, well, Cool Cool's the bass player, bro. Like, yeah. These guys about to get you rich, you know what I'm saying? And I was on their side, like, so I'm against the family, right? And, but I'm not on contracts. I'm right. saying, I'm, you know, and like, we was, I was, we were on tour with Wyclef, and I was like, I'm out. Like, even Clef was like, man, I, I got you. Come on, bro. I'm like, no. Nah. So, Right then, like, DJ Davis caught me and was like, bruh, because now people are fishing for bands to sign. So Davis, being the snake he is, he's like, I'm going to go, you know, they're trying to sign the Flavor Kings or whoever, you know, because back then the, the funk scene was hot. We'd have funk fest at Tipitina's and it'd be six, seven bands and just fucking, you know. No, we're like late 90s, 98. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, so Davis kind of me and he's like, man, I'm trying to take my shit in a more hip-hop direction, blah, blah, blah. I've been talking to Stevie T. Stevie T was my boy that was in the Flavor Kings. Guitar player, like one of my great friends. I'm like, I'm like, fuck, Stevie T down. I'm down, like, blah, blah, blah. So, Rounder, we signed with Rounder. 
Davis and them, we like, man, Davis, you should just sign that shit yourself. He's like, no, when all you guys involved, blah, blah, blah. Cool. So we signed a record deal. We make the record on Rounder. So wait, the, the story you're telling is mirrors the, the show, the Tremaine show. With yeah, this, that, that, that's, no, that's, that shit is, yeah, that was all from yeah, real shit. Taken from that. Yeah, that's so, crazy. So, so we do the, all that thing and the touring and shit. So Davis, Davis went through like, I mean, I don't want to put him on blast, you know, but he went through personal shit and like, this old lady broke up with him. Long story short, like, so we had signed this booking agency and we got like this six week tour we booked around the country and Davis is like, I'm not fucking going. I'm like, damn. Nah, bro, like, they're going to sue us. Like, you definitely, like, like, we all signed the contract. Like, all of us, like, Meanwhile, had he not made y'all sign, he could have been like, cool, peace. Yeah, right, 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 exactly. <laughs> See what I'm saying? So yeah. now, you, thank you, so now you get the point. It's like, <laughs> like, nah, bro, what the fuck? So, so we go do a tour as the All That Band without Davis. And while he stays home, he's a DJ on OZ at the time. So he's just blasting us to the whole city saying that we stole this band and he's going to Like, so we don't even know the all this is going on. We're on tour. Right. And that's when crime, we were like, we're obviously not going to call ourselves this. You know what I'm saying? We had to like work it out with the agency, like we're changing our name to this, and this is what it, you know what I mean? The shit was awkward, but while we're on tour, like as all that, we're like, this is not really who we are. He's on the air, basically like trash, putting me on blast. Like, yeah, right. like they stole my band. Like meanwhile, he in essence he quit. Right, and left you guys holding the back. Basically, and you just were doing what yeah. you signed up for. And basically, we sued each other, and we I won the lawsuit. It was all okay. fine, but whatever. And we he. He may have gotten over it or not. I don't know. I we, I see him. Long it's a long time ago. It doesn't matter. It is what it is. So, Crunk started out of that. All right. From and so the we, ashes of that whole thing. Yeah, because we were just saying, because we already had to connect. We were already touring. Right. And then people were like, "Well, you guys were awesome. I don't care what they what you like. We want. Are y'all gonna come back? Like, yeah, we're gonna come back. But this is our name. Right. When we come. So yeah. So we just went and recorded that record real fast. Yeah. Because when I got here in 2000, like, all my local friends, like, Brandon and yeah, yeah. those guys. Yeah, well, we, we got here. You got to go here. You got to go here. So we called yeah, yeah. tell you in 2000, man. And it was yeah, like, I mean, that's... You me. guys were the thing. In yeah, the it, it, went, it yeah. went hard real fucking fast. Yeah. So it was like... So again, I'm still young. I'm only 25, 26. And so I'm still like, oh, yeah. It's still like, I'm the fucking man. Like, we about to fucking... We about to get rich, right? But they were crunk. The, the problem that happened with us was... It was twofold. One... Like, nobody was signing New Orleans bands then. Like, the, the bubble had, that, that came and went. Right. And, then, and it was like, but our sound was like, it's like, like, like we had motherfuckers, like, I mean, the guy from Atlanta Records, like, told me straight up, he's like, man, if you guys are from California, I will sign you right now. It was like, the fuck? We can we can move to California. Like, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, if, like, like, if that's what, like, yeah. like, yeah, what are you saying? Like, you know what I'm saying? So it was like, that New Orleans thing, you know what I'm saying? But it's not really New Orleans, though, because you guys are, it was like, no, but it is, though. You are playing like, New Orleans music. You're playing right. Folk music but this is what we do, music. like, but this is like, this is what is happening in New Orleans, right? Like, it's why they just wouldn't accept it, you know what I'm saying? So then. That was back when record deals were, like, the key to the universe. Yeah, right? bro. Yeah. So then, and it took me a long time to get out the rounder shit, you know what I'm saying? I had to, like, play on records for free and do, play on, like, you know what I'm saying? I ended up on some killer records because of it, like, like a Roof Brown record or some other shit, like just because they were like, you got obligations, you know what right. I'm saying? <laughs> like, fuck with the DJ Davis or who didn't, whatever. Like, you personally, you know, so that was, but whatever. So I was already weary, so that I got weary. So when the people, what happened was, 
How long did Kronk go for before like, he got to this point? Like maybe uh, like three years. Okay. When there was a break, because we had a big wreck in 2000. Like I flipped the van in Colorado. Okay. So I think we started back up in January 2001. So this must have been like almost 2003. Okay. So we were almost four years in, maybe three or four years in, and we were about to sign a deal. And then um, something happened where it was like, where the booking agency was on doing like regional shit. So I was like still booking all this shit. And then like something happened where like I missed a rehearsal or something. And my first started like questioning my dedication. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I missed a rehearsal. Cause I was booking the gig, like, what are we rehearsing? You know what I mean? And it was just like, a, and it was like, we were all like homies, and it's like, you know what? We, can, we can't sign this. Like, if we sign this record deal, we're gonna ruin all our lives. Cause I already see what's, what's happening right now. We're like, we're already not on the same page. Like, and like, if we sign this contract, we're gonna be legally bound, and like, it's not, it's not gonna be good. It's just like, and I was sad, I was real sad about this shit. And like, was it a group decision? Or it was. Decision? It was kind of a group decision. Okay. It was kind of more me and Captain Midnight, because that was the two sides, I guess. Okay. I mean, it seems so silly now, because I mean, like all those dot guys are still really good friends of mine. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like they were in my wedding type shit. Um, and every so often, you guys do something, right? You did once. I know. We, I we haven't. Sure yeah, we once. tried. We haven't really. I mean, it's not. You know, it was also like we didn't like. The band didn't stay together long enough for us to grow with it, so all the songs are very like misogynistic and uh, you know, it's like so it's like feel kind of stupid. You're like, yeah, I don't know. Like <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you know what I'm saying? So um It was fun in the moment when it lasted, but Yeah, it was a lot of fun, obviously. Fun. Like, you know, we hit you yeah. know, we got we saw the one show, it was great. Um, but it but so that band broke up and I like got real down about it. Like I was about to move the whole thing. Like I even took a job, like I started working at Virgin Megastore. Like jazz buyers, yeah, yeah, like just like, cause I could work on the second floor buying the war music and jazz music, and kind of just like take home whatever I wanted without them paying attention, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I sold a lot of shit to the tourists because I knew about it, like Zydeco and whatever. So they loved me, right? But I literally like my drums were in the ceiling, in the attic of Donna's Bar and Grill for like almost a year. Like I was like, like took the L sat, like I was like in all in that like turning the page. Yeah, like all right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because I wasn't getting those highs no more. Right. The David Byrne, Wyclef, that shit wasn't happening. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, I'm playing Cafe Brazil and shit. You know what yeah. I mean? Which is all right, but it was like, eh, I don't know. Right. So this can't, be, this can't be my thing for good. Right. You needed something else. Yeah, I just wasn't so feeling So you thought about getting out of music for a hot second? I did. And then, yeah. um, and then, um. Before we get out of that era. Yeah. Kermit. Yeah. Just talk a little so bit. So Kermit about was all, so Kermit's kind of throughout. So. Okay. 94, 95-ish, I started subbing for Shannon Powell. Shannon was my teacher at the right. time, right? And Shannon and Kermit, Shannon's getting a gig with Diana Crawl or Harry Connick or whatever. You know? So it's like, not really happening. So like, I'm the sub, but I'm like probably playing 80% of the gigs, you know what I'm saying? And so, and then... Uh, he took you overseas, right? He took me to overseas when I was... So the first one, I think, was in 95. So I would have been 21. Um... We went to Finland and Sweden. Then we went to France a bunch of times. Um, Corey Henry was in the band at the time. The uh, trombone player, not the piano player, obviously. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, so it's a... Of, uh, 
one of the brass bands, right? Corey and Kermit. Corey had was in the Little Rascals, and Kermit was in the Rebirth. Right. Uh, Kermit started Rebirth with Phil and uh, and Keith. Um, but then, um, yeah. So I was playing with Kermit when I got in Cool Bone. Like, but all you know, I was still uh, Ellis and all them too. But like, I was you know, I was most of my main gigs were with Kermit up until from like '94 to '97, and then I didn't play with him. Until the time we're at now. So now we're like in 2003. Mm-hmm. I'm not playing. Because um, I was working at the Virgin Mega Store. Or 2000. Yeah, 2003, whatever. And um, so I started dating Carolyn, my wife. I started dating her. No, I had, um, Kermit came to the Virgin Mega Store. Seen you on the job because Mark Samuels from Basin Street used to come all the time because he's Basin Street Records, so I would have conversations with him and I'm blocking, like you know. And Mark, I think, like, like, I don't know if he thought I was like down and out, or it was like it was, he, I could tell he was curious as to why I was here because right. he knew my talent, he knew I was like an educated cat, he was like, you know, but you know, I, I was depressed at the time, just didn't realize it, you know, right. you don't know back then, so I'm just like, yeah, whatever, fuck it. And so I was staying with my boy Scott W. Um, at the time, right by the fairgrounds. And uh, I'm still going to shows and shit and hanging out. Just wasn't just wasn't playing. Was like kind of over it. And then Carolyn kind of she was like, you know, where are your drums? I'm like, I don't know. I think they're in Donna's. Like, in the, yeah, they're like in the attic. I had to go like find the drums. And it was like, so Kermit came in there one day. The Virgin Megastorm was like. I need you to go do this gig with me in like I think it was in Macon, Georgia or some shit. And it was like five hundred bucks. I was like, what? I'm like, you know, I'm working the eight dollar an hour job. I'm like, what? Right. Fucking right. Like I mean, I guess I can still play, like <laughs> <laughs> You know what I'm saying? So as I played it's like two thousand three. So I kinda I started playing a little bit again and then um Carlos Washington, you remember Carlos? Sure, he's been so, Carl. So Carlos came in town when he first Rich started Giant People, yeah. right? So, so um, John Staten was playing drums mm-hmm. with Carlos Washington. So they come, they used to stay at my house when they came to New Orleans. John and Lowe's? Yeah, because I, I was staying with um, um, Tom Leggett, my boy who plays guitar, who was in my wedding, and um, Aaron, Aaron Wilkinson from Honey Island. We all stayed together. They had a band called Idle Time mm-hmm. that I was also in during the. During Idle Time was kind of post crump. Like when crump broke up, I was just like, high, gun, like funk Free cat man. for high. Like so, I played a bunch of Colorado hippie type white boy funk bands. You know, just to <laughs> stuff. Until I was like, that's what. This, that's why I got the job at Virgin because I was like, this is not this is doing nothing for me, right? So, so anyway, so Carlos and I used to stay at our house. We had a, a big musician compound as well. So, so Eric Boulevard, I guess, I just left. And uh, Carl wanted Staten bad. You know yeah. how Carl is. Carl's like, I'm going to get that cat. So they, they had like, literally had a rendezvous in New Orleans. And Carl was like, and John was like, I'm leaving with Carl. Right. And then, like, which, and, and John was like, man, I don't really want to stick Carlos out like that. But I can't. It's his opportunity. So John Staten was like, man, please go finish the tour with Carlos for me. So for, for as a favor to John Staten and Carl and Carlos, <laughs> I was like, all right, I'll go on tour with Giant People. Right. You know what I'm saying? I saw them once. Which oh. I did for like fucking four months in an RV where Carlos like retarded, uh, insane ass. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's not helping my mentals or my disposition right. or my 
and I'm away from New Orleans. Like, I'm in California and with these motherfuckers, like, fucked up. So, like, we finally came back for Jazz Fest. And I had been talking to Carolyn the whole time, like, while I'm on the road. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, basically asking her to say, I'm like, when I come back to New Orleans, like, you have to save me from this shit. Like, like, I have nowhere to go. Like, I quit my job and shit to come on tour with these assholes. And, like, you know what I'm saying? Because I think maybe she might have had my drunks because she's the one who told me to get them, you know. But right. I don't know if we kind of weren't even dating yet. She just, she just, whatever. The point was, just like, like, I can't do this shit. So I'm like, I started kind of playing with Kermit full time. Right. In like 2004. But again, I wasn't really trying to do that either then. 2005, I started recording a record. And which would have been the first Smokers World record, but so, and then in maybe June of 2005, I quit Kermit's band. Also, Corey Henry quit Kermit's band. Yeah, it was Corey Henry and the Young Fellas, the precursor to the Treme Fontet, right? Mm-hmm. And so we ended up on this festival in Brazil in August, right? Me and Corey Henry, John Boutet, you were backing up John Boutet. Me, Corey Henry, Ian Neville, um, um, Red from Rebirth, um, Vincent, and um, Will Terry. That's the dress. Yeah. yeah, Will Terry, the same dude, the soap man, was on yeah. bass. And Paul Longstreet from Crunk. Okay. And me on drums. So that was like the first, Corey Henry's first, like, band. Right. We're in Brazil, touring, Katrina hits. Damn. So, now we're there. <laughs> we're in Brazil. I mean, I just told you all the cast in that band. Me, Corey, Ian, all of us. Ivan and Tony were there. Pre-Dumpster Funk, it was still Tony Hall and the Heroes. <laughs> that was the name of the band. But yeah. it was it was Raymond, Ivan, Tony. <laughs> And it was and Nick, it was dumpster fun. And then um Charmaine Neville was there. Um, John Boutte, like I just told you, Devel Crawford was there. It was a New Orleans festival in Brazil. So we're all stuck in Brazil while Katrina's hitting. Damn. Devel having prayer circles and shit is crazy. Sad. Terrence Simeon was also there. So damn, all y'all were in Brazil when the storm hit. How were you getting the news? Like, how are you? Fox getting... News. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Shepard Smith. <laughs> yeah. It's just very inflammatory. And, like, you know, they were showing the Superdome. And, then like, the shit was crazy. And, like, so, like, you know, I was still had obligated. Like, <clears throat> I was trying to. I was doing the thing where I was subbing out Kermit gigs. So, like, the only thing I had officially quit. Because I remember we. Because I was still had obligations. Like, for the rest of that summer, like September, I was with Jamaica and all this other shit. So then, like, like I said, I started recording in May of 2005. So I was already planning on, like, starting Smokers World or what would it be? Smoke. I didn't know what it was going to be at the time. Solo project. I was already, my mindset was already on that. So then Katrina hit. So it's like, okay, fuck. So there's like, um, so a bunch of um, Ian and Ivan and all those guys are going to Hawaii for some other festival. We were supposed to like go to Jamaica, but Hurricane Rita had just fucked that up. So that festival got canceled too. So they like they flew us to Miami like maybe a week later. And then we get there and then like now what they were like Can't go I back. was like, yeah, I was like, well, cause Carolyn and I was like, thank God she like when she left the house in New Orleans, because we were staying together at the time. We I think we were already engaged. We got engaged at Jazz Fest in 05. So we were newly engaged. So, um, 
So I told her, I was like, take my truck, like, leave her car. So I'm glad I told her that. That guy, her car flooded, like, a mile down the street or some shit. So she had my truck and a dog in Alabama. She's from Alabama. But her, from Mobile. So her shit was, her mom's place was fucked up in Mobile, too. So they were in North Alabama, her and, and some of our friends. So, like, I get to Miami and American Airlines is like, uh, you can go to Houston or Los Angeles or New York. I'm like, no. I was like, I mean. You have people in Houston? Still? I was like, I guess I can go to Houston, but that doesn't really help me because I'm trying to get to my truck and my right. dog and my girl that are in Alabama. So, now if I go to Houston, now I'm at my mom's house with no car. Right. Without you, my girl. further away from Yeah, like, why? Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, of course, I thought about that, but I was like. Right. I was like, yeah, basically, like, I'm choose, I'm choosing my mom or my girl right now. Right. Like, I'm going to choose the girl, I think. Mm-hmm. Especially since she has my truck and right. my dog. Like, right. seems logical to go there, right? So I'm like, they were like, Huntsville. I'm like, I need to, I need to get to Birmingham. They're like, well, we can fly you to Dallas. And then, <laughs> and then you can maybe get a cheap flight. Like, American Airlines is totally fucking me. So literally flew me to Dallas. And I had to buy like a four hundred dollar flight to Birmingham, and I'm getting it back because we like I got you know. You wrote to them. I called the Johnny Cochran type motherfuckers on that one. <laughs> Say, bruh, I'm a victim of this shit. You know what I mean? They were like, yeah, yeah. They, you know, you everybody was giving money back back then. They were like, New Orleans, like what's it called? They were like, yeah, whatever he says, fine. <laughs> you know, nothing to do with that shit, right? <clears throat> so when did you so, finally uh, get back? To so we got back. So we ended up in Mobile. Um, at her like recently deceased grandmother's house which is like this mansion antebellum house on the square mobile like across from the fucking mayor so here's my ass up there shirtless smoking blunts and shit you know (laughs) (laughs) like fuck it we in Alabama now right but I'm like you got so uh, most of them were in Houston like Corey Henry Glenn David all those guys Kermit all them ended up in Houston right that was a big uh, landing spot right so but the thing is I'm still have gigs with Kermit so like now I'm trying to figure out, I'm like, all right, how am I going to work this out? Like, I, I got to go to Houston periodically. That's not going to work. So, like, we're supposed to play at the Austin City Limits Festival, so, which I had to drive from Mobile to Austin. Like, 15-hour drive. Not the ideal way to get there, but, like, this is what I got to do to make the gig, right? So, Hurricane Rita hits, and I can't drive to Texas from Alabama at the time. Like, I tend to, like, destroy it. You know, it's like, miss that gig. Then like her another Hurricane Ophelia came through and bust fucked up our gig we were supposed to do in Jamaica, so like Mister like so now I'm like asked out in Alabama and all the gigs are getting destroyed by other storms. So now so like finally like maybe one of my last gigs I had to play with Kermit was in um, New Brunswick, Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, Harvest Festival. So. Another hurricane was going up Jeez, the East Coast. So like, was fucking up Boston and shit. So we like, we got two of the guys, Paul Longstreth also from Crunk, because Paul was with us. So Kermit, Paul ended up in Houston and just ended up in Kermit's band mm-hmm. by default. Because right. he was like, the I mean, he's like, yeah, right. let's see you, you know. So it's like, he's like, we need you. Right, so Paul's <laughs> on this gig with Mark Brooks. And Paul and Mark get there like a day before me and Kermit. Me and Kermit get trapped in like Boston. There's some dude from like, Bangor, Maine drove down and picked us up and drove us to the border and the Canadians met us at the border and drove us to the get like it was a real but it was the Canadians bruh did they hook me up because I understand I was a Sabian Symbols at the time 
the fucking Sabian Simple Factory is like down the road from where this festival was. So I show up and there's this huge um, Samsung Sabian suitcase full of like underwears and shirts and toiletries, like you know what I'm saying. And, and like, and they and like they took me to the for the guy from New Orleans. Yeah, they took the you've been right. There. They took me to the oh, haberdashery man. and the guy like fit me with this custom suit and gave me all this like like mad crazy fat gear and then like they gave me. Uh, like free symbol like all these symbols like it was like yeah and then I found out while I was in Canada that like my cats were alive they found my cats in like the shelter so I'm like it was like really emotional yeah and then like but I'm still like and Kermit's like man come to Houston man we got gigs I'm like I'm like nah man I'm you know I'm, yeah so so then so we hooked up with the Edge from music you know Ed the Edge from U2 head of right. music Karis it's like once you sign us to deal with Edge they were just like, you could just go online to like musician's friend and you would have like $5,000 worth of credit. And they made everything like 70, 75% off. So every, so we're all just like, everybody, everybody I knew remotely from New Orleans had mini studios in our house. I'm just like, I'll get that keyboard, these speakers, these mics, drum, like, yeah. they already given me drums like months before. Somebody just like, drums just like showed up in my house in Mobile. They were just like, Drums for you, like, yes. Like, I play drums in months, like, thank you. So, like, I had all these instruments and shit. So, I started, that's when I started writing Blurple Paint, like, literally in like 2006. And I, that record didn't even come out till 2012. Damn. That's how long I dealt, it took me to deal with that, all that shit. Right on. Like, I started laying the tracks for that while I'm stuck in Mobile. And I was still in there, and then, so at the time, so around January 06, Kermit came back. And that's when he started playing bullets, and he was like, "Just like, okay, yeah, don't quit the band, like whatever, like sure, like you got gigs of like, fuck it, you're like hell yeah, I'm about to play with Kermit again, because that was my way to get back home, you know what I'm saying? So now I'm going back and forth from Mobile to New Orleans, four days here, three days there, blah, whatever. So burn me out. Yeah. So now I'm back in the band, and we go through the building the house back up, selling the house, the whole shit, you know what I'm saying? All these years go by, and it's just like. Still fucking playing with Kermit. Like, I was supposed to quit this shit in 2005. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I'm like, what am I doing? And I'm putting out records. I put out Verbal Pain came out. The DWB came out. You know what I mean? I'm like, right. it is what it is. My first record came out in 2007. Right. So I'm like, what what style are you are you writing this music in? I mean, it's, it's not traditional New Orleans music. I, it, I mean, it's considered R&B, I guess. R&B. But it's like, okay. yeah, it's just. No, second line rhythms or no? Some, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, well, now... I'm not talking about soul. I'm just talking about... Yeah, the, yeah, yeah no, the other stuff is more like... Yeah, it's more just kind of like like my inner Quincy Jones, like just the okay. visions of my, you know, he like jazz approach from this way or R&B approach this way or whatever. Gotcha. You know what I'm saying? With the hip-hop influences. Just all the influences, yeah. you know, meld into like one thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, like it kind of like... The shit I do was the same. Like, the shit that Childish Gambino does now or Frank Ocean right. does now, okay. like, that's the shit we've been doing since, like, yeah. or, like, Anderson Pac. People were like, oh, my God, he sits behind the drums and raps. I'm like, yeah, yeah I was doing that in 1998. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> me and Mike Dillon laugh about shit like that all the time. Like, yeah. all this innovative shit, I'm like, shit, me and Mike Dillon's doing that yeah. shit in, like, that's 99. That's New Orleans getting ignored. Right, exactly. Like, yeah. dude, we, like, hello, like, we were trying to show you all that. Like, we've been doing that shit. Right. You know what I mean? Me and Sasha talk about it all the time too. It's like, 
we'll be at this festival. So, you know, Sasha's the little New Orleans girl. And she's got to sing little Liza Jane and blah, blah, blah. And they want me to, you know, march around with the bass drum. And it's like, and the European bands, like, we on their stages and they have, like, drum machines and moves. And fun. we're like, yo, why can't, like, can we use, like, can we use that shit for our set? <laughs> like, y'all know, like, you know what I mean? Like, the people's still perception of New Orleans is still, like, so small. It's like, it really right. Is. It's and unfortunate. Like, but it's it's very unfortunate. Yeah. You know but once you know, it's like, then it's undeniable. So the point was, so I turned 40 in 2014, and at some point, you know what I'm saying? Because I mean, Kermit was good to me financially. So it's like, it was hard to leave. And then I would want to quit, and they'd be like, uh, this California run. I'd be like, yeah, I want to do that. It's like, oh, we're going to Europe. Like, we're going to Amsterdam. Like, okay, I think I'm like, 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 well, I'm about to quit. Like, oh, I'm at the Blue Note for six nights. Like, okay, yeah. I guess I'll do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. But I, so I had to just force myself. I was like, no, like, like I got because I'm not, I'm miserable. It's not fair to him. You know what right. I'm saying? Because I don't care. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And then it's not fair to me. My, my, my old lady's like, you like this Love sucks for you. Right. Right. Like, right. I'm like, you know, Nikki Glasby. God bless Nikki Glasby. I gotta tell you about she this. Came one. Into the gig? No, 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 no. She so this ties in with you, without your other guests too, because it's how me and Weedy Weedy became friends. It was a it was a Chris Rogers Chicago Fandango, whatever. So it's like one of these weekends. Um, it's like one of these weekends where I play with everything. like I play. I had to get with Kermit, I had to get with Glenn David, then I did Chris Rogers to put me on some gig. Like on a boat with everybody, you know, Nigel and Weedy and Talib and every, you know, one of them gigs. So like, cool, I'm, you know, and uh, this is the first time I did one of Chris's gigs, and I stayed at his house because I didn't know any better, you know. What I'm saying? <laughs> like, so I'm like, how many days have I been up? Anyway, it doesn't matter. So, so when Nikki, when Nikki was talking, because so when I um, one of my last tours with Kermit, we toured Dumpster Funk for like maybe ten days or something. And then, like, Nikki saw her on tour. She was like, man, like. Because she was playing with them. Yeah, she was like, bruh, I see the way they treat you. She's like, you're fucking miserable. I'm like, yeah, man, I don't, I don't even care. She's I'm like, you know, I'm like, it's, it's Christmas time. Like, I'm just like, yeah, whatever, going through the motions, you know what I'm saying? It's like, whatever. And then Nikki was like, you know, I guess she was talking, you know, like. D free, like what about like I heard your record that she was like, What are you doing? Like, you don't need the shit. And I was like, Man, I don't know, man. I mean, you know, like I ain't got money like that. Like I ain't kinda just I'm trying, you know, like I ain't trying to just give up my gigs. And she's like, Well, look where you at though. She's like, people taking care of you. like you got like use the shit around you. You know, she's telling me, like, she's like, I'm about to start my own shit, blah, 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 blah. She's telling me this at Chris Chris House. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Like maybe like a week or two later, she quit not so fucking started and I remember like, that that day and I was like you know so the next time I saw her was probably New Orleans or something cause we had kind of made a pact I was like alright you quit I'ma quit like you right you know what I'm saying <laughs> so like and I was like yeah I'm about to turn 40 anyway like fuck that I gotta do my own shit right so like she did that shit like quick and I was like oh shit like uh, you know some lollygagging like you know I had already like made the pact like I'ma quit start my shit and she was like Next time I saw her, she was like, bruh, you bullshitting, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, she kind of held me too, which I love and respect her for that. So I'm like, so I, I ended up being with mine heavy, you know. So like, the last tour I did with him, 
I kind of decided before the tour. And I didn't really tell my wife because I didn't want to freak her out. Because, like, we were coming back for the tour. Like, three days after that, we were going to record a new record. And then we were going to go back to New York to do, like, six nights at the Blue Note. So it was, like, six, $7,000 or something I was about to just, like, walk away from real fast. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, like, and I kind of decided before I told my wife. But she had been telling me, like. She wanted that for you. Right. She didn't want the financial hit. Right, that's gonna say. So, but so you know what I'm saying? We had to deal with that, how it came. But whatever. So we were on that tour. It was an East Coast tour. Flow Tribe was opening up. It was not, you know, we had fun. Ardmore. Same shit. So, the Boston. Like, so we are the um SAC. Kermit had already moved to Houston at the time, because you know he goes back and forth now, right? Too, right? Mm-hmm. So we we're, we're in Boston airport. He was flying to Houston and we were flying to New Orleans. And he had still, like, we had been on tour for like eight days. He hadn't paid me nothing yet. Like, and this was like a common thing. He would, he never not paid me or never owed me, but it was always a, a struggle. It's it one of those things. And like, his totem pole is large with, you know, his wives and ex wives and children and bar rooms and right. neighborhood and all that, which I respect. But it's like, where am I in the heart? Like, I need to be hiring this. Hierarchy, you know what I'm saying? Right. So like, right there, like, cause I was in a wait, you know what I'm saying? To talk, and then so I just told him right there at the airport. I was like, man, I'm out. I was like, I'm gonna need you to PayPal me Wednesday, and if you don't, we have a problem. I was like, we good, but I was like, I'm, I'm not gonna, I can't do this anymore. You know what I'm saying? I announced it. It's like it's cool, you know. Yeah. It's all good. Still got love for Kermit, obviously. Yeah. But it was like, man, it's 20, like, this nine years after I was supposed to quit this band. Right. You know what I'm saying? And you Yeah, right, that. And all, you know, every promise myself, everybody. everybody yeah, yeah, every, whatever. You know, so, you know, it, that's right. just what happened. So, still no inclination of starting a brass band at that point. Like 2014, that right. was. Before we get into the brass band, because I, I want to give you a chance to really, like, right. flesh that out. We've been talking a lot, a lot of music your history mm-hmm. and stuff. So I kind of just, you, you talked a lot about influential people in your life. Right. People, you know, Ellis, Ed Peterson, Walter Payton, Kermit. Right. Um, I know you were real, cl- uh, real close with Farrell, uh, yeah. Houseman. Extremely close. You know, rest in the power. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've seen, you know, all the, the outpouring for him when he passed. And, you know, it was like, had he or hadn't he remember it was like prematurely uh, online that he had passed he's actually not quite yeah yet. all that I was in that I was, was in Scotland when all that was happening so yeah. that, was, that was terrible for me yeah. actually and of course everybody was hitting yeah. me up left and right um, well I just wanted to ask man if you if you were so inclined to maybe share a reflection or two about your relationship with him or you know his, what you admired about him or our funny story whatever the hell you want to talk about I just know you want to so, yeah I mean I mean, there's a lot of stories. I mean, yeah, he was, well, you know, like I said, like I told you earlier, you know, growing up being like a classical musician or kind of jazz cat, you know, it's different from being a leader, being a front man or whatever. You know, but, you know like I did do musical theater as a kid, so I had a little of that stage in me, you know. Like, you know, being from, from being from behind the drums to transitioning to being in front of the stage. Mm-hmm. Like house man, was probably like the number one dude that I emulated in regards to like being a front man. Like not necessarily vocally or, or even stylistically. 
Um, I'm talking about musical wise, but I'm just talking about pure actual stage presence and command. Like you know what I'm saying? Like everything I learned from that dude, Kermit to a, a to an extent, but a lot from Alice Man. Just to, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like he told me. Um, the quote was, I think, the stage. Um, the stage is your house, you know. Make sure your house is clean. Don't let nobody disrespect your house. But when the time comes, burn the fucking house down. <laughs> See what I'm saying? So, like, you know, if you read between all those stanzas, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in there. And things that you can continue to apply and, no matter what stage of your And that's how this dude would talk to you in the midst of smoking, like, nine joints. Right. So you know what I'm saying? So it yeah. might take you thirty years to catch that. You know what I'm saying? You'd be like, right. Oh fuck, I remember in nineteen ninety nine, like I just now Ellis is the same way with that. Or like it'll be like I remember some shit Ellis told me in nineteen ninety four, I'll be like And then oh. it hits you. Right. Then it hits you. So Houseman is definitely of that category where it's just like so many things he said to me, like I don't even remember and like they'll pop in my head and I'll be like, Oh like I'll see something that'll make me that'll trigger some memory and I'll be like I remember some shit he said about it and be like, oh, dude, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, oh, I, I just thought <laughs> the magic of, yeah, of like, House way after the fact. Like, I got to see him, I remember seeing Galactic all those times. And yeah. I thought it was cool, um, but it was just, I was going to ask you your thoughts on it. It was just like, here are these, you're talking about like white boy folk yeah. earlier, and like how that was just, didn't get you off. Yeah, a lot of my friends, of course, because you know, I, I have a lot of friends through Galactic, you right. know. And, and, and I'm not and, putting them in that lane as much as I'm just saying like, Here's this like iconic frontman brother, the the G, like right. But what G I'm saying code. is, but but a lot of my friends um, didn't really feel Houseman back in the day. Yeah, they were like, they thought it was corny. They were like, I don't know, I like that part of the show. I'm like, what? I'm like, that is no, the that's show. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm just Lots saying. Lots of people in my friend right. circle would like go piss or smoke a bowl. Right, it was weird. That's what I'm saying. Like that always disturbed no. me because yeah. I'm like, no, y'all don't get it. Right, yeah. you know. I just saying? didn't get it, but I didn't. But walk I think. Away from it. No, that's what I go to listen. But I, but I think Houseman got validated by the Sharon Joneses and the Charles Bradleys and the Lee Fields. Like people yeah. were like, "Oh, you know what I'm saying?" But you, but you look at it like he was on Charlie Tuna's record in 1998. So it wasn't like I mean, some people, you know, Charlie, Charlie. I mean, Charlie um, Hunter. I'm sorry, right. he's on Charlie Hunter's record back in 1998. So it's not like so people knew and like and we, the, how he got to deal with Rounder was because of all that because he sang a song on our record. Oh, right. Scott Millington from Rounder was like, oh, I'm definitely signing that dude. Yeah. And that's when the House Man Cometh came out, which I'm on that record. Like, I rap, I do the first, I'm the first, I rap on the first song. Oh, right on. Yeah. Because I became, because then it was like, over the years, I became like his Jerome to his Morris Day. Like, you oh, know right what I'm on. saying? He was just like, Galactic, we didn't know. He used to be like, Freeman, go up there and I need you to talk to that people in about five minutes. Bring the house man up, you know. Like, all right, that's so, awesome. So, like, they call him house man. And I was you know, stage and been almost just like, I'm just like, I'm just giving, you know, right. ladies and gentlemen, you know, like, <laughs> you're about to be entertained, but you know, you go through the whole thing. But, like, I learned the funniest shit with him, though, was when he he would fucking like when Galactic got on stage, you know, they played maybe five or six songs or something before they called him out, but like, during that time. Like he would pimp out the backstage so hard. Like he like the lad to get some stage in Fremont. Come on, like, he had me like six backstage passes. Like cracked the door. He was like, "That's Molly, Aaron, 
Jennifer, Tiffany. <laughs> like, uh, tell the house man wants to see him. <laughs> like, 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 it's like, it's like, me in the front row, like, house man wants to see you. Really, uh, he's like, he's like, you come back there, he's like in his robe and shit, smoking. He's like, you know, Ashley's back there, like, steaming his suit. I'm like, so I'm like yes. Right. I didn't even like, know that. I just seen him on stage. And right, that's what I'm saying. Like, the backstage shit was the right. shit that I was like, like, just like. Again, showing you how it's done. Yeah, just right. like. and all, But my favorite thing to do with him was just like, because he. <laughs> Back when, you know, before he got sick, he stayed in Hollygrove still. like So he stayed, like, around the corner from the Maple Leaf. And the funnest shit would be to watch him. Like, he would have Maple Leaf for, like, 20 minutes tops. And just watch him just go collect weed. <laughs> like, he was like, Frank, follow me. Was, like, going there. Just, people just, like, handing him joy, saying the weed. And, like, he would never smoke with anybody. He's like, oh, man, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's like, yes. Like, yeah. You learned that. Right, right, yeah. You know, just like, bruh. That's awesome, man. Bad motherfucker. Yeah, I was sad to see him go, but I really was, I thought it was heartwarming just to see the tributes that, yeah. you know, that came out. And so, for, so I appreciate you sharing that. Of course. Another, another cat, I, you know, luckily still with us and celebrated his 70th birthday in grand fashion last night. Yeah, man. Is the, you know, the uptown ruler, Cyril Neville. We were talking earlier about you know, cats that have really put you on or showed you, opened the door, or kicked down the gems. You were quick to say, Cyril, yeah. on your, you had a show on WWOZ, right? Yeah. Talk a little bit about your relationship with Cyril, if you wouldn't mind. Well, it's funny because, like, I've really known Cyril for a lot of years. Um, but, like, personally, our relationship has really grown over the last few years. Mostly, I think, because of my internet presence and just, like... It's like very entertaining to him and gay nails, but the shit I say, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you definitely. And then like, <laughs> so it'd be like, man, who is that cat? And they'd be like, man, you know him? That's King's boy. You know my boy King Harvey. Right. And so it'd be like, oh yeah, the drummer. Okay, you know. And then like Omari, you know Omari, his son is like a fan of mine since he's a kid. So like Cyril would be like, oh yeah, Derek Smoker. Like I know this. Yeah, okay, blah blah blah. You know, but never just you know. And I'm not the type to force a connection. You know what I'm saying? Like I feel kind of the same kinship with George Porter too like where I like developed later mostly because I was a jazz cat so you know, like my affinity was more towards the Ellis's of the world and the Uncle Lionel's of the world and the mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying these are just more my and um, Harold Baptiste or whatever you know so like these funk heroes of mine because I started playing funk later in life you know what I'm saying so just like at some point you, get to, you start to realize like yo these people live down the street like I could just go smoke a joint with Cyril and ask him the question. Like, it's not that hard. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, saying, like, I could just, like, ask George what the song is. You know what I mean? Instead of, like, fucking guessing about it. And then they die, and I'm like, damn, I wish I would have asked him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So, like, so, so I mean, I, I guess as you get in your 40s, too, you start to be, like, more aware of that. Like, man, like, I should really cherish this while it's happening. You know what yeah. I'm saying? So, yeah. like, Cyril... He's definitely more he's like an uncle to me. Like, just very... He's so knowledgeable. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, and like on his many trips to Africa, and he just t- teaches a lot about the, our personal history. You know, and I, I... You know, I deem myself a historian. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, history is one of the things I studied in college. So I'm like, you know, um, African kind of... Like, I got a minor in Africana studies. So I'm like, I, you know, I'm very learned on these things. And, um... Well, Cyril always dropping so much knowledge on me in that regard, you know? But then, like, unlike George, Cyril remembers everything. (laughs) 
Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, like, all the stories, he remembers that shit, which is, like, incredible, of course, to hear the stories. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Of course, yeah. You know what I mean? And you know, I never really ask him, but it just come out in conversation. He'd be like, oh, man, that time we met John Lennon. I'm like, wait. I'm like, wait. He's just coming. He's like, just chill out for a second. You know? And, like, when I had my radio show, he was definitely my favorite guest. And they would get so nervous when he came because they just knew. They'd be like, you know, try to, you know, just keep it on the top of the music. I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like, Hell. <laughs> like, Siri, your mic's on. I'm going I'm to eat now. Go ahead. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, Time's yours. Right. Just like, lay it on, like, lay it on the city. I'm like, well, there you go. What are you going to do? Respond? You know what I think it, it would... I would imagine because you said he's kind of like taken by your social media presence yeah. and you're being outspoken. And, yeah. You know, he's, if there's anyone from that period that's a social justice guy that's out there, like, you but know. But I'm saying he doesn't, he never realized I was that dude because he just right. sees me as a dude that plays drums with Kurt. Right. But it may, but I'm, I'm sure saying that's he's, why he like, well, of course, he's like, oh, this dude's like me when yeah, I was, he's like, exactly. oh, exactly. Yeah. And, that's my point. So, but, yeah. you know, like, but someone like Daryl, like, like it was easy for Daryl to see that in me because the like those guys are contemporaries of mine. You know right. what I'm saying? Where so like they were friends of mine. So like that's how I got more in with him because I was just hanging around those dudes. Right. Because they're my you know like we're playing at tips. Come hang out. Like yeah, of course. Like yeah. Blah blah blah. So you know, and then Daryl just saw that in me early too, and, and play, I'm playing gigs with Reward. Same thing. Like, right. You know. So. So you said he, uh, you have a podcast in development. I'm developing. It's, it's called Set Break. Right on. So me and Arson Delay, mm-hmm. she's a great singer here from the Boutte family. She's gonna be my co-host, and um, Cyril's gonna be our first guest because uh, it's yeah. gonna be a you know, music for a podcast. So all the main guests will always be musicians. Yeah, right on. Yeah, that's awesome. And you have to, you know, hit me to that. Yeah, of course. We'll make sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll collaborate when, once we get it. Up right on. Moment. Well, um, again, I wanted to talk to you. We we had. Uh, Spirit of Dialogue a few months ago. Um, you know, I've been coming to Jazz Fest since 2000. I've been to 16 out of 19. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom comes every year. I was lucky my partner and I shared it uh, for, the, for the first time together. This time she's been many times. Right. Um, this is like a, maybe somewhat of a touchy topic, but I feel like I want to address it and I know you want to address it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, New Orleans gets invaded for those two weeks. Um, um, in a lot of ways it's great a lot of money comes to town weed comes to town cool peeps come to town but uh, you know I can certainly see from when I arrived in 2000 to now a a seismic shift in like who's getting booked and the higher profile gigs and where the attention lies and uh, and it's safe to say that it has lost a little bit of its local authenticity and it's a lo- there's a lot of like super jams and there's a lot of these sort of let me get this heavy hitter, let me get that heavy hitter. At the same time, tickets, asses in the building is is really at the end of the day what it is. So there's a line in the sand and Well, it's 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 I all just, it's all it's it's all it all boils down to people's intentions, right? Because, you know, demand um, supply is built off demand, right? So the intentions of the people, the fans. I'm not talking about the promoters. I'm talking about the patrons. People like people, me. People like you who come in to support the music. The uh, intentions are warped by the backdrop. You know what I'm saying? 
it's such a gorgeous backdrop and it has such a gorgeous spirit. New Orleans, you know what I'm saying? That it fools you into, it, it, it ropes you into a sense of authenticity and a feeling of home, right? So, so um, people feel very, um, you know, they have like a gracious um, spirit about New Orleans and how this, the city makes them feel and what they give to it or take from it or whatever, right? So the problem is, it's like people really intend to support the city and the arts of the city, you know what I'm saying? And they do in ways of like, you know what I'm saying? Or we try to stay somewhere local or historic or like go to this restaurant that's famous here, blah, blah. But like, it seems like when it comes to the music, um, that part gets lost on them, um, mostly because of comfortability, because it's still, it's like, it's like, just like how I, w I went to New York to see Jamiroquai, you know what I'm saying? Because it was like a great experience to have as a fan and to spend with your friends and family, right? But it was amazing it was, in New York. Right. So, what, so Jazz Fest is like that times 10,000. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so, it, so it's like, so the intentions of the people from California or from New York or from Philadelphia or from Chicago or from wherever, Atlanta or wherever they, or from Germany or wherever they come from, you know what I'm saying? Um, they really intend to support and, and respect the heritage of the city, but like, the, you, know, you know what I'm saying? But it's, 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 it's really cool to be able to see you know, your friends' bands or bands that you love in New Orleans because it's a different experience. Right. So, so for you as a fan, you still feel fulfilled in the experience, but you cheated yourself and the city because you only experience half of it because, like, the music, the New Orleans music is part of it too, you know what I'm saying? And some people, there's some diehard people that stick solely to that, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, there are. And there's a very... And, you know, and there's levels. It's very, like, there's a lower level, lower tier level as far as, like, compensation you can get for doing that as a musician, right? Uh -huh. During that time of year. Or, like, yeah, you can play your regular gigs at the regular little bar or pub or whatever and make your little bread. But it's not, you're not going to capitalize on it like you can, like right. I said, because the, the revenue is here at, during the time. So, as a local musician, then, you know, it pins you into a weird place because it's, like, it's like, well, is it a picket line? Like how am I, yeah, like how line? am I gonna represent myself correctly if if I'm not gonna get booked? If I, my regular gig is getting, you know, invaded, like right. you said, by another gig, and so okay, so then like I have to either succumb to like I have to make myself part of this other thing, which has nothing to do with what I actually do. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? So so so. And it's kind of, so it's kind of weird because then like, so I'm kind of exposed out here too because I'm like, that's not really what I do. Right. I'm on some random gig with people I don't know. And so I'm like, that doesn't really help me. Right. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, I'm, I had to be wary of that. Right. And then it's like, my band is like, we're all getting raped. Right. So it's like, um, you know, and there's not, there's no, there's no gig that's good enough for me to be like, no, no, we're going to do this fry, you know, what can you do? So it's, it's a, it's a, and like I was telling you, I've told you this example before. Like if anybody can tell me an example, any example <laughs> of New Orleans musicians going somewhere for 10 days and taking over and evading and having all the gigs. No, never happened. 
So like and so 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 it's never gonna be an fair exchange until that happens. You know what I'm saying? Right. Unless we go back. To There's got to be a middle ground. Of course, yeah, I hope that we work. And it is on the promoters somewhat, but it's also, it but it's also on the intentions of the people. Like I said, right. it's not because none of them are bad people. Nobody's trying to, right. not nobody's hating on New Orleans and saying we don't deserve the blah blah. blah you know what I'm saying? Right. You know, it just happened over time. It sort of shifted into something else right. now, and that sucks for locals. Right. Because you got to basically cut off your nose to spite your face. If right. You gotta play those gigs. You're fucking yourself in the long run. Right. And if you don't, then you're not getting in on that money when it comes to town. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Yeah. When you first brought it to me, and you know, and I apologize, and I'll do it again on the air, but I sort of got defensive and a yeah. bit internalized it, and I sat with that for a while. Yeah. And I want you to know that's why I wanted to ask you on the air, right? Because um, I feel I felt like, well, fuck, I'm, I love all the New Orleans guys. I go see them, but then I realized that's know, why like, you were the one I reached out to you, right? Because I was like, you, I, I kind like, of had a hand yeah. in in drumming up the mania right. going to see all the out-of-town cats and writing about it and building the hype. I'm not responsible for it, no, but no. I contributed to it. No one person is responsible for it. Of course not. But I, at first, I didn't see my own culpability. Right. And now I do. Um, and that's why I wanted to have this conversation. And I, I am going to set intentions this year. And hopefully, I can find some middle ground. Because, you know, I want to support y'all. And I love New Orleans music. I also love to see my other favorite bands that aren't from here when they're here because the Serpent Beast comes out. Yes, I mean, I mean, I understand that. I mean, because right. I, I see it too. Like, I, I know, right. I see all these bands too other places and I'm like, oh, I get it. But you know I'm, what I'm saying? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. do my part to kind of place the focus on local cats. And it starts with this conversation we're having now. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a good, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's been happening, it's been happening gradually I for 20 years. I think the conversation is, is begun. Yeah. You know, you guys are speaking on it. Right. Yeah. And you're being heard. Yeah. And let's hope that it, you know, turns out this spring. You know, I yeah. can only, I can only hope, and I can only get in people's ears. I can only bang the drum. And I just hope people listen. But I mean, it's all. I mean, but it's still. Jazz Fest is still it's still awesome at its core. Of course. I mean, but it's gotten it's so. I mean, it's so ridiculous on so many levels, like. Inside and outside the fairgrounds, so it's hard. It's not. That's what I'm saying. You can't really put it on one thing, but it's like, and you can't, like you said, you can't blame the club owners either. No, you know what I'm saying? Asses in the building, and it's yeah. pre-drought for them too. So they're yeah. like, we gotta get it all right now because you know June is about to be, you know. So right. like, I get that. Let's bring it. Let's bring it on home and do a little bit of current stuff. Um, you mentioned about the brass band. So you, you got Soul Brass Band. You yeah. started about around 2014. That when, when you made the decision, you're like, I'm done with Kermit. I'm going to do me the first thing or the, the main thing you, you it started. It wasn't, yeah, 2015. Is 2015. Well, 2014 is when I quit Kermit. Yeah, and I was like not, I hadn't, I mean, I was booking some Smokers World gigs. I was doing like residency at Maple Leaf, like kind of just okay. like. Whatever you wanted to put together. Yeah. That was good. Just trying to see, you know, and some. The hip hop thing was obvious, you know, with that part, and then um, I want to get to the low end after the soul. Yeah, and uh, so, so in that, that spring or like I guess early summer of twenty fifteen, um, Glenn Davis, so Glenn Davis' manager at the time, Kimbo Packer, who's a friend of mine, was like, you know, we'd like we need a drummer to go on tour for Glenn with Glenn Davis, and I tour, you know, I mean, I know Glenn since he was a kid, and I toured with him before, and I was like, didn't really want to do it, but it was like. I didn't have a gig, and 
you know, the tours in like Cal, they were going to California, Chicago, you know, I'm like, yeah, whatever, cool. And I'm like, so James Martin was in the band at the time. And I had met him when he was in high school, but never really played with him that much. We had been on a few gigs here and there. And I was like, something about that cat sparked me. And I was like, if I can room with him, I'll go. You know what I'm saying? Because so I'm going to pick this dude's brain and find out, you know. Because I didn't even know if he smoked weed or anything. Like, I had no, I was like, that's how. Yeah. I'm like, we find out what's up with this dude. You know what I'm saying? Because I was just something about him. You much younger than you? He's 10 years younger than okay. me. Yeah. So, you know, okay. whatever. So, on the road, we kind of click immediately, and then, like, we kind of got the same mentality. You know me. Like, I have friends everywhere, so I'm like, yeah, see a sound check. <laughs> like, 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 yeah, like, I'm not staying at, you know, I'm going to stay at my friend's beach house or wherever. Like, right. So, I'm like, James, like, you might want to roll with me. I'm about to, you know. You're going to have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, basically, we started, like, road, you know, became road, road dogs immediately. It's like, man. I want to start a band. And, and I was like, and I'm, and I'm tired of these 67 piece bands. <laughs> so I just started a fucking trio. <coughs> you know what I'm saying? Because at the time, um, the keyboard player was like in and out of the tour. He was like flaking. So he would be on some gigs, fly out, fly back in. It was like, a, we have a guitar player or something. It was like a random tour from that stuff. So a lot of the gigs, the rhythm section would just be, it would just be me, on, me a tuba player, and James, and Glenn. And like Glenn sings, so it's really just yeah. the trio. So like, Service. Right, so it's like <laughs> it's like sax, tuba, and drums, and it's like James, like I got a bunch of pedals and shit. I'm like, this could be fucking cool, though. Okay, it's like to start a fucking trio, like yeah. So the soul record that came out was that record that we were we were like, you know, when I was like, you know, I was still like, yo, let's get Nigel, let's get, you know, we want to get all these guests anyway, and Kirk Joseph, of course, you know. So like, we already had the mentality. So then my friend um, Lala. Who is a um, she the she's like a talent scout for productions. She works for production companies, like okay. TV, and so she's like, "Hey, um, these they're doing a CeeLo Green commercial, and this director is from LA. And he wants to do this like New Orleans funeral scene. It's like, can you help him out and be a consultant? They'll pay you a thousand dollars. I'm like, fucking right. Like so, I'm like so." They come in town, I'm going to meet the dude at Cafe Chafalai. He's talking about, he's like, yeah, I don't do this jazz funeral, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you know, he's like, there's this band and blah, blah. He's like, he's like, can you put the band together? I'm like, yeah. He's like, like yeah, we can do that, whatever. Like, you know, I'm just thinking aesthetically. Like, yeah, cool. Like, if y'all going to pay people, I'll get anybody there, of course. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you want a, you want a brass band? Like, no problem. You know what I mean? Like, and like, well, do you, like, what's the name of your band? I'm like, I'm like, oh, I don't have a brass band. I'm like, I can get cats, though. It's like, well, what should we call it? I mean, we got to have, you know, because, like, the director was a graphic designer, so he wanted to go make all the shit himself, you know right. what I'm saying? So I'm like, the name of the song was Music From My Soul. So I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I'm like I listen to the song. He rhymes all the shit with soul. I'm like, soul look cool across the sash. And I'm like, you know, this completely aesthetics. Like, right. just consulting. I'm not even thinking about anything else. Like, you know, there's no... There's no brass band music in the track, so I know it has nothing to do with that. It's just what they visually want, you know what right. I'm saying? So, like, yeah, so, soul brass band. I was like, that sounds cool. So then he goes and designs all the shit. The director uses designs of sashes and hat bands and all kind of shit for the video shoot. And I get the cats there, and we dress up like a brass band, we do the shoot. 
shoot ends, the director's like, man, you can keep all that shit, man. Thanks for putting this together for me. He's like, man, you might all need the gear. Yeah, he's like, maybe you might need it one day. I'm like, yeah, it's a bunch of brass man gear. Like, fuck around, I might need it. You know me, yeah. I'm like, always like, cool, no, no. whatever. Yeah. So I take the shit. About two weeks later, the same girl calls me. Yeah, they want, can you do that same brass band thing again for this Nike commercial with Anthony Davis? Like, what? Fuck it, right? <laughs> so, like, so we're, like, film, so we're filming the commercial, like, at, like, 7, 8 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning in the French Quarter. Because, you know, they're trying to be stealthy about it. Because, like, tall-ass Anthony Davis, and then, like, me and Leon and a bunch of people, and Calvin Johnson, a bunch of people that people know in New Orleans. Right. So they're, like, we can't, you know, we can't do this at real time. We will never get this shit done. People will be mobbing. Right. Like, so, like. But of course, it's Sunday, like, out of time, people are idiots. I'm like, it's the French Quarter on Sunday morning. It's packed as fuck. Everybody's going to brunch. So, like, the whole city's in the fucking French Quarter, right? So, like, motherfuckers are snapping, snapping, hashtagging, soul brass band, blah, 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 night, you know. So, like, my inbox start filling up. <laughs> um, can your brass band play our office party? I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> Like, I don't have, like, what are you talking about? I don't have a brass band. I'm like, wait. Yeah. Like, you know what? Like, fuck it right. Like, we, like why not? I'm talking to James. I'm like, I mean, fuck it. Like, it's like, fuck it. So, like. You knew it. Straight up, man. It's like. So that was the trio sort of just morphed. Yeah. It was just like, this, that's the, the, the material you play. Like, like, we still play Genie in a Bottle and In Bloom and. All those were trio songs originally. Okay. That was shit we were doing with the trio. Did you it was arrange like, those like that? Yeah, because we were like, we we're like, we'll do pirate trio songs. So we were doing like Led Zeppelin, like okay. Nirvana. You know what I'm saying? We we're trying to like sell it as like a rock trio, but with a sax and a tuba. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that was gonna be the angle. New Orleans thing. Of course, <laughs> right? So it was like, which yeah, we was people were already biting on that. Like we right. were already getting gigs as that trio. So did you sort of morph Soul Brass Band into? Or morph the trio to soul and take with it the idea of like we're gonna play like reinvent pop music exactly in this style exactly how that that is dope and it's so and like, the first organic. actual the first actual gig we played was was at Tipitina's we opened up for Red Barack literally the first gig we played we opened up for Red Barack that's incredible so what is the lineup now how many guys usually seven, seven. typical yeah because um, yeah. I like using guitar because we do because the guitar helps when you do the funk and the hip hop and rock yeah, of course, I'm So that's Danny Abel, mostly. <coughs> yeah. He's not out with Tanking the Yeah, we use uh, this cat Ari title, who's become like, he does most of Danny's gigs, which is funny. Right. Danny's <laughs> Yeah, but Danny, um, well, I'm telling you, I'm announcing it to him, you're that. So we're recording a new record in about three weeks, and Ben Elman's producing it. Oh yeah, yeah, right on. And yeah, the, he does a fair amount of production. Yeah, though, right? and the count, um, the guy, the guy who makes um, Shorty's record, and he worked with Sinatra and No Doubt, all like the guy that's mixing it. What's his name? Count. Count. Bad motherfucker. Galactic. I think I've heard the name. Yeah, yeah. he's done a bunch of records. Um, so I'm really excited that's dope. about that. When are you gonna go in the studio with that? November twelfth, like. Oh, right around the corner. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Danny, um, yeah, and um, Michael Watson on trombone, James, of course, on sax. And then we use uh, multiple. Leon, Kid Chocolate on trumpet, Riccio, Mark LeVron. We have several trumpet players. And then um, Chris Royal, of course. Chris will flow on sax, keys, right. whatever. Bass, yeah, whatever. Chris is, like, unreal. And then, um, Aaron yeah. Lambert. Um, I'll play drum set mostly, but we'll have a few where Aaron will play bass drum and I'll play snare, you know, okay. just depending on how we arrange them for this. How about live? Do you sit on the kit or do you play bass drum and snare? 
live I play scenario. Yeah, just yeah. Right. Yeah. So you were saying earlier this is like your thing and your but James kind of his too. Yeah, because the trio was because that started. Yeah, because right. this this whole concept of like this approach to the music had started with me and James. Gotcha. You know what I mean? And going out on the road and picking him as a major and, roommate. And, yeah, right? and, and producing the record together and like we're the ones who've been like making it happen and with the tours and shit. Was it crazy to think of when you were like deciding like should who should I pick which cat should I like room with that ends up being him and now that's your main gig yeah. and you're the thing and it yeah. happened just because you filmed a fucking commercial yeah um, or whatever it was before the commercial the music video yeah, yeah. but whatever All yeah. That. and uh, I always wonder because it's just you know I know you for a long time and it was like you know obviously I took a time out I was away from music for a second yeah. but when I came back. Uh, you had a brass band, it was a thing, it was like, right. you know, and I was like, Damn. It was weird too because like, my, you know, Soul Rebels, Rebirth, right. Little Rascals, I'm like, all really good friends of mine, people I've known for 25, almost 30 right. years, they've been in brass bands the whole time, never dawned on me, you know what I'm saying, yeah. to start, <laughs> it's just like, it's like, and then it's like, shit, people love brass bands, it's like, not a hard sell, you know what I'm saying? It's like it's not easier to sell than like uh, a hip hop cover band with horns from New Orleans. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like people are like, "Oh, brass band? Like, yeah, we'll buy that." You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. Let's let's take into that for a second with yeah. the hip hop thing, because like obviously the brass band is an easy sell. You right. can go with like the people like my friend that needed a guy for a exactly. gig, right? Or you really want some real authentic, like from the streets New Orleans shit. It's, right. It's also sold brass band exactly because you guys are cats right. that are actually doing it, right? Not just rehashing some t- tired tradition not you know what I mean? but there's brass bands everywhere now though. that's hilarious though. yeah you yeah, know the like, there's, like there's a bunch of like philly actually has some good ones yeah. um and there's a guy, yeah those guys are actually not bad yeah. and, and and there's you know the funky dog but over the seas there's like there's so many brass bands all over the world so the influence is heavy you know right, right of course yeah. but i mean this is this is the mecca for it yeah, I mean to be from here. That now, so the hip hop cover band was just started out of so low end theory players, right? So Gravity A, which right. is like a um, Foo and his crew, Foo, right? So well, Danny was also in. So right. right, you know, I'm a friend of that band, of course. So like, and my boy Matthew Zarber, who's one of the rappers in low end. So we would uh, sometimes do albums with them, like, like we did Jay Z one time. Or like with Gravity Eight. With Gravity Eight for like Halloween or you right. know some. Which home album? Um, we did like Blueprint, and like I did like um, I did Izzo, I did uh, um, Hard Knock Life. I can't. Remember. It was a while ago, but and so, so how twenty fifteen also in twenty fifteen the Halloween, so like, the Soul gig it probably just happened. Like we played it because that memory just came up like last week. Or a few days ago, so we're around this time. Twenty fifteen was our first gig with, with Red Barat. No, oh, no the, right. yeah, opening for Red Barat. Because there's a picture of me and Aaron with Sunny okay. that just came over my memories like a few days ago. Okay, from that gig, right? Okay. So that's open, opening for Red So the Barat. Halloween. So, so my idea for the Halloween of that year is I wanted to do Midnight Marauders. So, I got the Gravity A guys and some other extra people. And then me and Zarbo was gonna be tip. I was gonna be Fife. And we, so and we're doing that twelve mile limit, just like this little bar that was by my old house, like a little neighborhood bar. The days I used to play there once a month, just because I was a patron of the bar and they, they loved me. So I would have a gig, but we loved playing it because it was like a, it was like playing old school New Orleans gigs, or you know all the gigs just being like Dragons Den and little places like that, right. Donnas. So the bar, the bar had that type of vibe. So I used to love playing gigs there. So like, let's do it. Let's do it. So, 
you know, like some experimental shit. Let's just try it out there. So, like, did Midnight Marauders, like, for Halloween. It's like, Whole record? Or most of it? Maybe like eight. I think we did okay. eight of the tracks. It was like, damn. And people thought it. Yeah, it's like, people like, like, man, y'all should really do that again. So Jesse from the Blue Nile was the one who drove Jesse. was like, yeah, Jesse do, Page. He's like, y'all got to do that shit. He's a friend of the show. He's like, y'all got to do that shit at the Blue Nile. It's like, it's like, yeah, cool. I was planning on touring the Blue Nile. And then, like, I don't know where Tips was like, no, no. That shit at Tipitina's. And it's like, and I, it wasn't, I think the first one was like, Smokers World does. Try it wasn't even yeah. I like I didn't even come up with a name yet. And it was like the first one we did at Tips was like almost a sellout. And the second oh, one hook. was a sellout. Then we did it House oh, of Blues. Yes, right. That's okay. Yeah, but then we did it then we did like a fight tribute in Mobile, then we went to Jackson and do it. Then we then we we're like, all right, so then we did the outcast. The outcast like we like broke the bank at tips. Like they had to be out the safe, like the whole thing. <laughs> and that was like and that was like huge because it was like a huge test for all of us because they're like very challenging like musically right, lyrically everything it. yeah and authenticity is important yeah for us ever. yeah no for us yeah yeah so so we when we pulled that off I was like oh shit like we got something here and then we did the 420 thing where we did the chronic both chronics yeah um, same gig same gig at, at the joy how'd that do Awesome. It was yeah. 420. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the summer when I was in Israel, so we went to Israel, I went to Tel Aviv to do a New Orleans Jazz Fest in Tel Aviv. With what project? With um, Soul, but it was really a quintet. I was playing Kit and Danny was playing guitar. We had a tuba and the trumpet and sax. So some of a hybrid. Playing the traditional jazz. jazz. Yeah, but we were playing, uh, we were playing more traditional jazz because it was like a traditional festival. We were just trying to get over there. So anyway, I got over there, and I found some real promoters. And they were like, you should really bring your hip-hop band here. And I was like... Oh, yeah? In Israel? Yeah, I was like, that's a good fucking idea. So, I'm trying to bring it... So, yeah. Like, first, I'm going to try to New York, L.A., you know, of course. Big work. Yeah. But I think think that band is going to be huge. And, like, Germany... I think it would do well in Philly. Yeah, I think so too. I'm saying, but I think it's gonna be huge overseas and in other countries. Yeah, I mean, hip hop is huge over there. And this is golden era hip hop. So yeah, you're taking it all over the place, and I know we talked about it off air, but maybe explain why it's so that. Unlikely. So both my bands, Soul and Low End Theory, started by accident. Right. <laughs> but but that's way cool shit happens. But not really because I quit Kermit, so I was right. made, I was trying to make the accident happen. Right. Well, that's dope, man. Yeah. And I want to just ask you to explain to the people why it's unlikely that we would get so. Uh, excuse me, unlikely that we would get the low end thing during Jazz Fest. Because I've been on you like, man, book a Jazz Fest gig, book a Jazz Fest gig. You were saying, here's why it can't or likely. Yeah, it's 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 just uh, logistically, it's it's almost impossible during Jazz Fest because everybody's schedules are like packed to the brim, and um, you know a lot of my it's a guys like it has to be top notch guys because it has to be people that you you. Trust. You can trust to learn all the material on their own, you know, mm-hmm. so we can come together for the show. So You said one, all, one rehearsal sometimes? Yeah, and all the top-notch guys are obviously going to be, like, overwhelmed during Jazz Fest. So right. I and wish that, I wish there was a way we can make it happen. Like like yeah. I said, to all, any promoter listening, like, yes, make, get get the venue and make the guarantees 
and book us a rehearsal space for half a day. Right. And we could probably make it happen and it would be incredible. So the room will sell out for sure. Absolutely. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That would, yeah. that would be amazing, man. I mean, it's the same. It's like the Michael Jackson Stevie thing. I mean, it's the same way. It's the same formula. However, you do that, really. Yeah. Or like the, the Earth, Wind, and Fire. You know, it's like it's kind of the same formula. So it could be done, obviously. It definitely can be done. And done well. Yeah. I'm just dying to see it. I've seen a couple of videos, you know. Yeah. I've seen you do a little side, like, side version of yeah. that. Just the Dilla one that was like a Chris Rogers. Yeah, yeah that, that, was similar, a, you know, that was that was cool, though. Yeah, I like the yeah, I mean, I love doing it. The, the little ones are easy because it's like we just like come up with yeah. a concept real fast. And like, you know, that, I mean, that's the beauty of, of that. But when you're doing like, like a tribute to a record. Yeah, yeah. but that's the beauty of it is because it can be curated. Right. So like. It could like it, it could almost be the promoter like that's kind of how the joy happened because it was that guy was like man it would be awesome if y'all did the chronic I'm chronic like, unfortunately I'm like, oh, I'm like uh, okay well, light bulb yeah so <laughs> so I mean you could kind of pick and choose when it comes right. I mean there's still a bunch I mean we still have to do Biggie Tupac there's still yeah not and I mean there's so a, many yeah endless yeah <laughs> you know what I'm saying <laughs> the roots yeah I mean there's so many obvious ones happen. like you know what I mean like yeah. yeah. Are you gonna handle the thought, a thought artillery? I guess I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Before we go, you got the sound of Philadelphia shirt on, which is great, perfect for the interview. <laughs> um, you mentioned something about maybe like you know you Nige and some cats doing something Philly themed. What's that about? Yeah. Well, I mean, or just I'm an just, idea. I'm just, just, as just from the standpoint of soul music and American music, like I'm very attracted to the Philly sound, like from Frankie Beverly. Yeah, we're from all the way from back to even to now, like up up until. You know, Jill Scott and Boys to Men. Yeah, and all, you know. So, like, um, the Delphonics, you know, sure. the um, Gambling Huff. Of course. So, um, that uh, is the Lou song. Rawls is huge. Uh, Louis, there's a Lou Rawls song on the Soul Record that's out. Um, Groovy People, that's that Kenny Gamble wrote, actually. Um, so, yeah, uh, Nigel Hawes is also a big fan of these works. So, we've been talking about for literally years trying to, um, do a show well, yeah, yeah. playing tribute to yeah um, Harold Melvin and and um, um, the Spinner you know like there's a bunch of Philly, Philly soul yeah right? just Philly soul yeah. Yeah, Sophie all that yeah, yeah. Uh, Leon Huff yes. Jr. was in my high school two years younger than me oh nice he's like a producer hip hop of course that, you know, <laughs> yeah. well that's awesome man I, uh, I look for you gotta hit me to that whenever that Philly thing happens yeah, but but see that's the thing about that's the thing about Smokers World and Low Injury Players is like both those bands are bands that can be curated. You yeah. know what I'm saying? So it's like things and blah blah blah. It's like that's what we're made for. You yeah. know what I mean? So like that's a lot. That's the way of things now. If you look at all the calendars, it's just like tribute band, tribute, but tribute. You know what I'm saying? So like I figure if, if that's the way. We could do that, but actually do it in a way that's like original and hip, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and authentic to you. Yeah, yeah right on. Well, that's dope, man. I definitely want to look forward to checking that out if it ever happens. Cool, man. Well, this is a long one, dude. We're I got another podcast at seven, too. Yeah, I was going to say, I got I got more, but let's let's wrap it up, man. So I appreciate you uh, taking the time. What's the best way for people to check out what you're up to? Like, is there a website? You want to have more, hit you on Facebook? How do people get Derek Freeman, Derek Smoker? Yeah, soulbrassband.com okay. or bandoffreeman.com, which is the same exact website. <laughs> right on. Cool, man. Yeah. 
Or DerekAFreeman.com. Either all, all those are the same. Cool. Well, I'm sure people will be stoked to hear uh, what you're up to. So, this has been uh, Derek Smoker, aka Derek Freeman, Soul Brass Band, on the Up for Life podcast uh, here in New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm your host, B. Getz. Uh, we thank you for checking in, and we'll see you next time. Yes, indeedy. That was Derek Smoker, a.k.a. Derek Freeman, the Soul Brass Band, low-end theory players, among a storied tradition in his 25 years making music out of the city of New Orleans. So we want to thank Derek for his time and the vibe and We look forward to all that's going to be happening with him in the coming days. And we'll check back in with him around Jazz Fest. I wanted to close out with uh, the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. Normally I like to do something a little bit off kilter from what the general tenor of the interview was. However, um, I was very touched by Derek's recollections and reflections regarding uh, Houseman, who you heard moments ago, and we'll hear shortly for the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. Now, Houseman was a kind of like a polarizing figure uh, when I was young. Some people loved him, some people didn't, um, but he was definitely different from the norm, even from these white boys that, that were in Galactic that were 20 years younger than him and just sort of playing boogaloo funk and kind of off-brand meters boogaloo vibes, if you will. Um, if there is such a thing, um, I guess they always had their own voice. It was just a new thing, and we were hip to it pretty early, like Cool and Off Era, the record that came out, I want to say around 96, and we saw him in 97 in uh, University of Vermont at this uh, converted church, and they played a gig there, and Houseman was like, holy shit, look at this dude out there in the suit, you know, peacocking around, holding the joint in the palm of his hand you know it was amazing and I always had a fondness and admiration for House and how he just was so swag so swaggy and just had so much mojo when he took the stage and you just heard about it from Derek about it you know behind the scenes even more mojo even more swag so It was a sad day when he left this earthly plane earlier this year and I wanted to offer reverence and respect and pay tribute to House and his uh, irreplaceable mojo uh, when he fronted Galactic and just in general. Um, Obviously, he's got the solo record, The House Man Cometh, which we heard Derek was spinning rhymes on the opening track. But yeah, we're going to play a track that was originally by Casey and the Sunshine Band, and then Galactic made it their own with Houseman, and even uh, the notorious Big, Biggie Smalls, Francis M.H. White, flipped it uh, on the r- 
track Respect. So basically, um, we are going to take it back to Tipitina's. Now, Tipitina's recently in the news. Tipitina's Uptown was purchased by Galactic. Galactic realizing a dream come true, purchasing the venue that basically put them on the map and where they consistently make their bones each and every year. Um, several times a year, including a otherworldly Lundigra performance annually the night before Fat Tuesday, which I was lucky enough to catch on the year of the Lombardi Gras, um, the year the Saints won the Super Bowl. I went to Carnival the one and only time and went to that show. It's a three-setter at Tips where you spill out into the streets, Chapitulis, and uh, walk down and boom, Zulu was rolling by on uh, St. Charles at dawn, about like 8 o'clock. And it's craziness. Uh, so you get the three sets of Galactic into Fat Tuesday in full effect. And uh, I was lucky to do that in 2010. And uh, Galactic recorded uh, a live album from Tipitina's uh, back in the Houseman era, early 2000s, called We Love Him Tonight. And you often heard Houseman address the crowd and assure them uh, we love him tonight. And ben Elman has carried on that tradition in uh, House's absence. And uh, let's just uh, take a moment to just remember House. And uh, and we're going to play I Get Lifted Up High, Galactic. We love him tonight. Live at Tipitina's. And we'll see you next time on the Upful Life podcast. And I'm your host, B. Getz. Thanks for tuning in.
to see everybody out here tonight. We got Tim from Tallahassee. We got Mitch all the way from California. We got Colorado in the house. We got them all standing tall. Yeah, and we love you and thank you for coming once again. We don't want to leave the love out of this thing. Cause that's what brings it all together! Yeah!